Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR. And of course, the master of ceremonies is here, Mr. Jim Ross. What's going on, Jim? How are you? The world is yours, Connie. The, the uh, Podfather is with us, ladies and gents. <laughs> and we are, we, I'll just tell Conrad before we started taping, folks, this really should be one hell of a show because it's much like last week in Beware of Dogs, which is a whole lot more than just about a power outage in South Carolina. This show is very compelling for multiple reasons. And uh, we'll get into those reasons as we travel this very unique journey that I had to live uh, back in 1999. Let's get to the matter at hand. It's over the edge. 1999 went down May 23rd, which is today, 20 years ago at the Kemper arena in Kansas city, Missouri. And of course, most people remember this pay-per-view for being the most tragic night in the history of professional wrestling. We lost Owen Hart that night. And of course, we're going to tell Owen's story and we're going to get there. Uh, but to Jim's point, we want to just take a snapshot of what's going on in the world wrestling federation at the time and expand upon it. So, uh, allow us a little bit of latitude here and, uh, we'll get to the big show, but first let's talk about what's going on in the company. Uh, Glenn Ruth wound up suing the Philadelphia Phillies for $10 million when a foul ball hit his wife in the left eye. And she was legally blind. And, uh, I think most people know Glenn Ruth as one half of the headbangers. This All is right. a very unusual story. When did you guys hear about this? And what do you remember about it? Well, it made the news obviously, because there's a serious accident at a MLB game. So, uh, you know, Glenn, uh, was a thrasher, of course, in the, in the headbangers, uh, good hand, always a good hand in him and his partner. I think they're Jim Cornette creations, I think. But they did a good job. Nice tag team. Uh, but we heard about it after that. And then of course the concerns were how bad is this wife injured? And we, then we find out later on that, uh, she had permanent damage in one of her eyes. It was just a, a terrible, terrible situation that it's funny, man, you get attached to these dudes and you find out, uh, you, you care for all these cats and, and their families. And then, uh, these things happen like we're talking about this week. And it's, it's very daunting. It's daunting to handle all the, uh, the negativity and the catastrophe. Let's talk about the other headbanger for a minute here. Uh, Meltzer would report that the insane clown posse is claiming they're going to return to the WWF to second a new clown. And the new clown, of course, is the other headbanger, Charles Warrington, uh, Chaz, I believe is a name. Many people know him as, and, um, or you can call him Chuck con if you want to. Okay. Well, let's talk about <laughs> this clown persona because this has been uh, an idea that's been discussed for a little while and debated online. And I believe one of the original ideas was to even bring back brother love as part of this DK or doink the clown or whatever you guys were trying here. What was the idea and, and why did we never see it? Well, I think the, uh, the verdict came back that nobody could get close to doing it as well as, um, uh, Matt Osborne, Matt Bourne, Matt Bourne was the greatest doink of all time. Now, I don't know if he's an award for that. This year's winner of the annual doink award. You know, that's not that, but he was good at it. And I think I, I mentioned this before in other shows, it's very, very challenging for any promoter, any booker any administrator to try to recreate, uh, the same as has been before. I, I used a Sifiafi analogy. One time we we're talking about Jimmy Snuka, uh, Bill Watts trying to replace a junkyard dog with every jacked up African-American man he could find. 
Uh, it, it just doesn't normally work. And I think the, the persona of the evil clown, uh, I thought was pretty, pretty cool. And uh, Matt Bourne pulled it off better than anybody. Let's, uh, let's talk about something that was not being pulled off to you got satisfaction, or at least it seems that way. Melzer would report around this time that Dory Funk was released from his role as training camp instructor with the idea that you guys are going to move the camp to Louisville, where it'll be under the supervision of Jim Cornette and Danny Davis. And there's a lot of talent in there. And one name really sticks out. Mr. Mark Henry was going to be there. Chat me up about why it didn't work out with the Funkin' dojo. And instead you guys chose to do OVW. Well, I want to say that, uh, Dory Funk Jr. Was a huge, huge contributor, uh, to the training of a lot of big time talents. I mean, he trained a lot of hall of fame guys. Uh, he was amazing, but you know, Dory was not a young pup like me right now, but he, he didn't, uh, they had to commute to Stanford. He and his wife, Marty, Marty had to travel with him. And we got, we got, we were using the warehouse facility at, at WWE television, which wasn't built for the wrestling, uh, training. They had, you know, it's a television studio. So it, it just was a. The fit, we outgrew the fit of where we were facility wise, and we wanted to be able to have a developmental territory that could produce its own television show locally and that could run live events because the only way a talent's going to get better is, is that they work in front of a paying live audience with someone better than they. And, uh, so that was kind of the idea we wanted, we, we eventually used the OVW model to, uh, open up one in, in Memphis and in Cincinnati, Les Thatcher did a good job for us in Cincinnati too. So we had three territories. And so from that one little warehouse thing, we migrated to the three territories and it ended up being, you know, now that the, now the performance centers, the, the big dog and, and, but that was where it started, uh, the, the, the performance center concept in Louisville, uh, Memphis and in, uh, Cincinnati. I want to talk to you a little bit about an article that ran in Forbes magazine, where it talked about how wrestling is booming, but wrestler pay is not. Uh, and the gist is 15% of the revenue, according to their study, however, they got their information is what goes to the talent. And they think that pales into comparison to other forms of media. Uh, and they would say that most wrestlers are earning an average salary of between 80 to 200,000. And they even talked to Ken Patera, who said that at his peak, he grows to 140 grand. Uh, but after all the expenses for travel and medical and legal, he was left with 42,000. When you see an article like this in the mainstream, especially when they say, and this really stuck out to me, Steve Austin, despite being the top draw for the WWF and making more than $5 million last year, has roughly the same control over his career as Homer Simpson. <laughs> so when you see, um, an article like this in the mainstream, if you're in the office, you got to worry, oh shit, the boys are going to see this and my phone's going to ring. Am I right? Yeah, it happens. Uh, any, anything that, uh, you know, we Conrad, the wrestling talent, you know, I've invested my entire life in this business. I don't want to pound it back or out a boy. I've loved every minute of it. It's my dream, my dream gig being in the wrestling business for all these years. But the one thing I got to say, and I'm sure to some extent 
whether you're an NFL player or a, a soap opera star or a singer, anybody that, that has to cater to a live audience and keep refining their act. And sometimes when the, the pay is a little untraditional, which it is a lot, oftentimes in that world, because these guys are independent contractors. They're paying their taxes via 1099 form that pay their taxes every quarter and which is unusual from being a regular employee. So, uh, I, I think that I remember, gosh, all those years doing payroll, I think we worked on around a 30, somewhere between 30 and 33% of the gross after taxes is what we, uh, what's what we call a talent pool. Then once you get into that pool of money from that 30 or 33% as it, as it was over the years, it wasn't that much for pay-per-view. It was a different formula. Uh, but there was a lot more money to cut up, bigger pie. That uh, the the idea of that eleven percent or where the hell it was is just is inaccurate, and so but it stirred the talent up. And talent was going to say they're they're kind of uh, skittish by nature when it comes to that. And you know why? Because they're not good money managers, and they know that they're they're uh, they're pooping in, in the bed, and it's not smart. And again, I'll use this overstated analogy. They, how many Rolexes do you really need? So guys aren't good money managers. So they didn't want the, they didn't want the, uh, the, you know, the gift horse to walk off the farm. And so they were all, anytime you talk about money, everybody got paranoid because they weren't prepared to be without any monies or less monies or to, to start over nothing. It was a sad thing. And it was like a dog chasing his tail around and around. And you went and he, he, no matter how hard you talk to talent thoroughly heartfelt, you got to save some money and get ready and you got to pay your taxes. I mean, I've had IRS, uh, I've had conversations with the IRS when I was uh, there at, uh, WWE and where we would, where a guy would, they said, we're going to have to garnish so-and-so's wages. And he hadn't filed his taxes in two years. Sometimes it's that kind of crazy shit. So I say, uh, I look, well, the guy's doing all right. He made a million dollars last year. Didn't pay any taxes. So you're making 19 K a week and change. And you can't find your way to pay taxes. I, I'm sorry. At some point, even as the father figure, you try to be everybody's uncle Jr. or whatever. You say, what the hell am I? Why am I so upset about this for somebody being so damned ignorant? And that's kind of where we are. That's, that's the deal there. Yeah. Any, anything would any indication that whether it be from Meltzer or Wade Keller or anybody else regarding, uh, the payoffs stirred the pot in the locker room every time. What do you think of the, uh, their rough guess that it's 15%. Is that about right? What was the formula that you used when you were trying to sort of divvy up pay for the boys? They got 33, the 33% was the, the monies. If you do a hundred thousand dollar house, real simple math here. Uh, the after tax figure would be somewhere around $33,000. 30% of a hundred grand is 30 grand. Let's use a higher number, 33%, 33K. Now you got 33,000 to play with. You put your card on the, on the, on paper, all the matches in the order of their importance and the referees and the managers and the agents. And out of that money is what they got paid on. Now WWE may use a different formula now. I'm sure they probably do because the revenues are much higher. Uh, they got more, they got more disposable cash to, to fund, uh, the talent payroll, but that's what it was then. So 
33 K. Then that's where it comes into the, the little, uh, peeping contest of it's discretionary money. Now what that means is it's up to the decision maker that's doing the payroll to determine how much of the $33,000 pool that you're going to get. And there's always, then there's always that rub because it was, there wasn't formulaic. It wasn't something they could just hit their computer or their, or their, or phone and add up what they're going to make. Everybody knew what they're going to make every night. Now, when I first got in the wrestling business, I got paid in cash nightly, not a smart deal either, but I got paid in cash nightly. And, uh, I don't know if I even paid taxes in the seventies. Hell, I don't remember, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> it, it was a smart deal. I mean, being JR is no longer doing the show. Uh, you know, Conrad is a partner. <laughs> he's got indicted. We think he's going to Leavenworth though. Or maybe that he's going to go to one of those, uh, those, uh, those, uh, you know, this nice, uh, country club prisons, but that's how it was. You know, just, the, uh, that was, uh, I remember one time Fort Smith, got paid in hot dogs and listen to this, this asshole promoter, Leonard clay, what is a con man? Oh. Uh, you couldn't help but like the son of a bitch. He kind of reminds you of uncle Joe on, on, uh, on, uh, what was that show? He's on uh, those Hooterville, not Hooterville. Uh, maybe it was Hooterville Petticoat junction. For your time, Conrad. Kids, Google a son of a bitch, will you? Just tell me out here. But he, Edgar Buchanan was a character actor. That's kind of what Linda Clay reminded me of. Edgar Buchanan in character as uh, Uncle Joe. And so uh, he paid me at hot dogs. I got two hot dogs for refereeing five matches, the only referee on a card. And uh, I asked for a Coke, and he asked for 50 cents. Oh, my gosh. And so I, uh, <laughs> we, we, uh, we did, that was not a success. But I paid my, uh, hey, that's paying your dues, buddy. So that's kind of the deal on the, on the payroll. Jim, uh, it was dis- discretionary and it's anytime you get into a discretionary scenario, you're always going to have some, uh, pushback because there's no roadmap that takes you there. There's no GPS for this process. I feel like now's a good time to, uh, tell you that you're going to get three hot dogs and two Cokes for Starcast. I hope that's okay. I'm ecstatic right now. Let's <laughs> talk about uh, Tank Abbott. He makes the news here because allegedly he had meetings with you guys before he wound up showing up in WCW. And one of the things that makes its way into the newsletters is that he tells you guys in your meeting in Connecticut, uh, he'd be a bigger star than Steve Austin. Ch- <laughs> chat me up. What do you remember about talking to Tank Abbott? Well, it was an adventure. Uh, he's, uh, he was a very charismatic guy. I mean, he had a lot of charisma. There's no doubt about that. He's one of those car wreck type people that you can't hardly take your eyes off of because you don't know how he's going to, what he's going to do next in the scenario. We were all, a lot of us there. Uh, I know Bruce was and myself, there may be a few others. Uh, I'm sure there were, that were becoming MMA fans, specifically UW, uh, USC fans. And, uh, you know, he's a brawler. He kind of reminded me of, a. Uh, Dick, the bruiser kind of a character, you know, from way back in the day, a, a brawler, not a really, a, he's not a whole by whole wrestler. Uh, that's why when Dick, the bruiser teaming with Wilbur Snyder, they had such a great combination because Wilbur was silky smooth, like Nick Bockwinkle and the, and the bruiser was a brawler. So, uh, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the thing there. He, he was, he had a reputation. Uh, we felt like he wanted way too much money. And we kind of chuckled that well, we're glad the guy's got confidence in his ability, but there ain't no way in hell he's going to be the next Stone Cold Steve Austin, at least in our view. And so uh, we didn't explore that opportunity much farther. 
one of the opportunities you guys were looking for is to turn Billy Gunn into a singles heel wrestler. And of course you're going to try that in June where he's going to win the King of the ring. But Wade Keller would report that there are some who believe the new age outlaws as a team are more valuable than the sum of the parts. And it's inevitable that they wind back up together after you've had, you know, a guy like Billy Gunn who had decent success with the smoking guns and then tried the rockabilly gimmick and the singles thing. And it was just a miss, but then he has greatest, his greatest success as a tag team. Why the, the push to break them up? Is that just the natural progression? Was Vince cooling on tag teams? Why split up the new age outlaws and try something different if it's working? You know, I don't know. And I have to ask him, but my sense of Vince and the tag teams is that Vince is not a fan of tag team wrestling in my view. Now he may have relented on that deal. Maybe in, in this stage of his life, he's more open to everything because why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't he be? Because he's done the same thing by blessing the advancement and the evolution of the female division. But I don't know that he was ever a big time fan of, uh, of, uh, tag teams. So, uh, but I, you know, it may have been also that their merchandise sales were down, you know, they didn't, they might not have had a good program. They could seem like they cooled off. And I think too, uh, uh, Billy, uh, wanted to be a heel and he wanted to be a single heel. That's how I remember it. Now I hope I'm right on that deal. And so they were, because he had been there and they're good soldiers that worked hard. He and Bart, you know, why not? So, uh, you, give it a try. Let him try to make the town happy. If he feels like he could draw money as a heel or be better, uh, utilized as a villain in the, within the storylines, why not give him a shot? Let's talk about the, uh, mean street posse. We've recently talked about them with Bruce Pritchard on something to wrestle. Uh, I think everybody knows now these guys were real life friends of Shane McMahon chat me up about the way they were received in the locker room. This feels like a Vince Russo idea, but one that Vince probably would have loved, but you've got a lot of guys who are, you know, friends with the boss's son who, who maybe haven't been to wrestling school and aren't the most experienced at what they're doing, but now they've got television spots. Feels like that's, uh. Maybe not the best locker room to walk into. What do you remember about that? Well, it's a wrestling locker room. Uh, it's no, no different than it's been for years. You know, there's a rite of passage. There's a respect factor. There's a initiation phase, uh, some mild hazing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you know, uh, those three guys, uh, that formed the main street posse and two of them, uh, Pete gas and Rodney, uh, were on the high school football team at Greenwich high, the mighty Greenwich high football club, uh, that Shane McMahon played on in high school. So they're all buddies. They ran together. So they, uh, they were joined at the hip. They were the three amigos, man. And then I think, uh, who's the other kid, Jason art, we put Jason art with those guys. I can't remember, but nonetheless, they're respectful and they're good kids. Uh, and, uh, they just, they, they were been warned. Shane was, did a good job of big brothering them about, you can't say that you can't do that. Don't put your bag over there. You know, and there is a, there is a respect factor. If, if you know, somebody, a veteran uses this certain spot to, to, uh, normally dress in near the shower, near the can or whatever, you don't take that spot. It's just simple. So, uh, you defer and they were good about, they had good common sense, you know, good families. So no, they were fine. And by God, listen, two tough guys, 
and they're good athletes. So, uh, you know, whether you like the cardigans and the, the sweaters and all that stuff, Hey, but look, there, there are some things we'll probably talk about today that they were in a situation where they, they were drawing some ratings. And so if they draw ratings, anybody, and then a minute by minute, so bear it out, you can become a very popular guy in the locker room real quickly. I'm glad you mentioned ratings because around this time you guys broke an all time viewership record for a quarter hour. And it was during the seventh quarter of a show with the finish of shamrock and triple H and then the big show versus undertaker match. And it gets a 7.32, which broke the all time competitive quarter hour record of 7.23 set the prior October, uh, with DDP and bill Goldberg, where they replayed the match from Halloween havoc, where the pay-per-view, uh, ended. Uh, before the feed ended before the show did. So it's a huge, uh, quarter hour. And I, we, you and I've never really talked about this, but from your perspective, how in tune with the quarter hours was the creative and were you guys monitoring? Was there some sort of accounting system on the back end for, okay, big shows averaging this quarter hour. And whenever we put Billy Gunn on this happens and are you guys keeping up with that? Or is it not that scientific? That's a great question. It should be the maybe they're doing it now at that time. Uh, I didn't ever see an official, uh, you know, summary of quarter hour ratings by talent. Now we certainly had, uh, uh, kept track of all the quarter hours and you knew who was in the match cause it said there, but, uh, to keep like a running total of how you did over overall every week when you're on TV. I, I never saw that, but we certainly were aware of the, of the quarter hours and, uh, and, and that can be a blessing or a curse. I got involved in some, some, some situations where my quarter hour numbers, uh, who, with whomever was carrying me, uh, were very, very good, which was a curse because you know, if it's good, they're going to do something else. And I got tired of getting my ass, I got bloodied and you know, Bischoff broke a center block over my head for God's sake. <laughs> I, 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 I always call that the, the Bill Shaw block of death. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. So anyway, it's that, yeah, they kept track of it. And of course it became a very valuable tool and maybe too much. So at times, because if something didn't get over it, maybe there may have been other reasons that that happened. There could have been a news break. It could have been something on television, a competitor that they switched the channel on. I don't know, but sometimes it was a little unfair. It wasn't quite clear, but no, no official cumulative running total, but certainly the quarter hours were they lived, the creative guys lived and died. By the creative hour, the creative rating. Let's, uh, let's move along to the May 10th raw. And what I want to talk about here specifically is the dark match, because I was fascinated in my research when I saw that competing in this dark match is Owen Hart. And we're going to talk a lot about later on this show. Uh, and he is so impressed with his opponent in this dark match. He comes backstage and says that guy's going to be world champ <laughs> and his opponent that night. As a young upstart and a tryout who's just recently signed and trying to work out the kinks, Mr. Kurt Angle. 
when did you know that Kurt angle was going to take to this like a fish to water about, uh, 15 minutes after I first saw him in a pro wrestling ring. And I'll tell you, we, we mentioned Dory jr. Earlier, uh, and, and we shouldn't leave out Tom Pritchard whatsoever. Cause he was a big, big part of the success of the uh, performance center, uh, the concept and training a lot of guys maybe didn't get the credit that he deserves, but Tom Pritchard's one of the best trainers in the business right now, anywhere. Uh, you know, he go that small group of guys like Lance storm, the Dudleys do a good job and their 3d thing. A lot of, there's some, there's not that many, there's not as many, there's not as many good schools as there are schools because some of them are jokes, but, th- but he did a great job. Tommy did with the, with Dory, but they both, uh, spent a lot of time with Kurt and, you know, I'd go over there in the afternoon after my office hours and see how things are going and, Shoot, boy, that's all you'd hear is, man, you know, this, this, this uh, kid from Pittsburgh is amazing. You know, he get, he, you tell him once, once he gets it. And so that was, Kurt had a feel for it. So it didn't take long. It didn't take long. He was that good. He's that good. And quite honestly, even at, what is he now? 50 or something. He's still pretty damn good. Yeah, no doubt about it. He, he's tremendous. And, uh, you know, it's a shame that it, maybe his in-ring days are over, but I guess it happens to all of us, unless you're Pat Patterson or Jerry Briscoe, because <laughs> they're going to be in one of the highest rated segments on this uh, special edition of raw taking on the main street posse. And, uh, it's supposed to be a comedy match. It is highly entertaining. It gets a tremendous rating. This winds up being the highest rated raw, uh, ever up until this point, it gets a huge rating, but I guess what I want to talk about is. You know, they come out to the real American theme, which feels like you guys are maybe trolling the Hulkster a little bit. And you, you think maybe, of course it was, <laughs> well, this is a tremendous match. It's super entertaining. It, it, you know, that you've got two old veterans in here who probably shouldn't be in a ring with two guys who, uh, with the main street posse, who for the most part, um, probably don't belong in a WWE ring based on the quote unquote dues <laughs> that need to be paid. The training, they, they had not, they hadn't had a long time to train. Right. And the, and the thing that we overlook sometimes Conrad talking about things like this is that your first priority should always be not the quarter hour ratings and not the, you know, the, the, the finish it's gotta be the safety of your people. And cause you know, disasters can happen very quickly in the, in this world, which are the, su- the subject of the show. Part of the subject of the show is such, but man, I, I'm, uh, I, I just, I'm, uh, uh, that's always what concerned me. Pat and Jerry were two tough guys. They're all all time legends, but look, you know, they're getting long in the tooth for doing that job, taking bumps and bouncing around and trying to get over the soreness, all that stuff and giving their body to somebody that's very green. That might be a little bit dangerous inadvertently all, albeit. So uh, I was concerned about that, but you're absolutely right. Conrad, that's one of the most entertaining presentations that I have ever ever seen on, on raw. It was just, um, it's one of those things that comes out of the blue, like the, you know, that this is your life rock thing. I thought that was going to suck. It was great, but th- that's, that's the deal. They were, those kids learned a lot and they were good. And they listened to the veterans who led them through the match every step of the way. I want to mention that, um, at the end of that match, when Patterson rips his shirt off like Hulk Hogan and starts hulking up and doing the posing and all that, <laughs> you finish the segment by saying something like, and fellas, he's single. <laughs> was yeah. that to, to pop the boys or what? That was hilarious, but it's way inside. Well, it was way inside. You know, it's me being 
uh, you know, way inside. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, uh, it felt right at the time and I never got any heat over it other than I got a lot of, that was funny stuff, JR, but it was a comic match. It was a comedy match. It wasn't Flair and Steamboat three times in 89. It wasn't those. It wasn't serious, deadly sports business and hard hitting wrestling. It was comedy. So I felt like that adding a little comedy, a little cherry on the Sunday at the end, uh, was uh, somewhat appropriate. And it, it put that Pat and Jerry, I thought back in a, in a decent light, as far as they win, we're having fun. Good for them. Thanks for the, thanks for coming next. So uh, that was how that worked out. Nobody got mad. Pat didn't get mad. He, he, he rings up to me every now and then. Hey, Jimbo. Yeah, Pat. I'm still single. Okay. <laughs> the highest rated quarter hour of that show, uh, was that match. It got an 8.61, which is pretty crazy. Can you imagine that today? No. Can no. you imagine an 8.6 quarter hour rating in, in on Monday night raw today and what that would mean in a, in the media world, social, social media, especially, and obviously God, it'd be huge news. And then because again, the, the redheaded stepchild called wrestling, you know, when the company comes over, you go put the redheaded stepchild out in the barn. So nobody sees him and, uh, you know, that, that nobody cared, nobody cared that we did an eight rating. And, and I think WWE at that time, I think we've talked about this too, not you and I, but when I was in WWE, we got to do a better job of telling our story. You know, my grandfather said, you can't sell goods out of an empty wagon. That's really true. The uh, main event of that show, we should mention is the rock teaming up with, uh, Vince McMahon and Steve Austin. They're going to take on Shane McMahon, triple H and the undertaker. That match gets a tremendous rating as well. A 9.17, making it the most watched pro wrestling match in the history of cable television. And the first match in history to top 10 million viewers. When you get a report like that on Tuesday, uh, does everybody just go straight to happy hour and it's cocktails <laughs> all around or, uh, wh- wh- how does Vince McMahon celebrate a big victory like this? 10 million viewers for the first time ever. Uh, those that weren't joined at the hip might've done a little celebrating going to hit the happy hour. Those of us that were, uh, joined at the hip to the chief was, uh, we just kept working because a guy like me on Tuesday, uh, I got this little thing called payroll to go through. And you know, that one thing, the animals ain't going to be happy if they ain't fed. It's like a zoo. It'd be a mutiny carnivores running loose, not cool. So I had, we all had work to do and houses to book and cards to organize for the weekend. So it was, we never got the opportunity in the, and this another one was blessing and cursed deals, Conrad. We never got the opportunity in that era to celebrate the great wins, but at the same time, we didn't have the opportunity to bemoan the bad ones. So I think it kind of balanced out, but there's not, there's, there, there's just no celebrating in the, in the, in the world of wrestling, uh, that one would assume would be there because it's always about the dollar. It's always about the next dollar. And that's what we dealt with. Let's talk a little bit about the content of the shows. You, you are experiencing record ratings, but at the same time, you're getting a little bit of pushback to the point that Vince has to go to meet with TSN executives in Toronto on May 12th, where they're going to talk about uh, the content of raw and the when it airs and what may need to be toned down if they want it to continue to air. Uh, and, and I guess where we have the FCC here in the U S they have the CRTC. 
And we had heard down here, uh, that TSN was editing a lot of the show anyway. What do you remember about this meeting that Vince had with TSN and what, what was the strategy to sort of placate everyone? Well, the, the placate, you just try to come to some neutral ground. You don't want to compromise your direction, uh, or, or a soften over, over soften, uh, the content. Uh, but you also had to be respectful of the fact that it's, it's a TSN's network and it's a very, uh, important network for our business, uh, north of the border there. So you've got to figure out a common ground. You got to figure out what you can or you can't do. So the meeting basically was to determine what they really didn't like. And, and they sometimes, some things they didn't understand. And that might, that could fall back on the King and myself. Maybe they didn't understand it because we didn't tell a good enough story. I don't know. Well, I think they had some old school values and, uh, there was, there, there were seemingly, and I'm not knocking the Canadian people whatsoever. They seemed to be a little bit more, uh, common sense-ish, more, uh, more, more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, they were they just seemed to be more conservative and that was not Maple Leaf Garden wrestling. It was just, we're way out there. And again, we're using this theory every week. We're going to take it a little farther and a little farther. And when we get too far, Vince will pull us back in. So I think that's kind of the situation there. So by him sitting in front of that, that, uh, those, those folks there in Canada, I think it helped our, our case a little bit because everybody got to see a face and they got to understand each other. And so that's kind of the deal there. We had to be careful. You didn't want to lose that clearance. Uh, back in the United States, a lot of newspapers are running stories about how middle schools and high schools are banning wrestling from the school. So you can't have wrestling references. You can't wear wrestling clothes. And I'm sure a lot of this is because you guys were, you know, selling pretty controversial shirts, you know, that were in tune with DX or Mr. Ass or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, does that ever, does that conversation ever make it to your desk or is that oh, not yeah. something? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here's why <clears throat> it comes back again. The two C's always keep popping up here. Cash and creative. If they're creative of the t-shirts is becoming less edgy and not as topical and timely as they were when they were selling, then when they change the creative and they don't sell as much, it's going to cost the talent some money. And when you take money out of their pocket, that was heretofore there, not a good deal. Some guys just don't understand the, the lay of the land, a big picture and things like that. So, uh, I thought, to be honest with you, Conrad, and, you know, I'm like you raised in the South. I'm somewhat conservative. You know, I was, I was lucky to have a mom and daddy in the house all my life. Very, very fortunate. But, uh, I thought that the overreaction on some of these t-shirts and some of the trying to protect kids from this, that, and the other, maybe it's just ahead of the social media thing. Maybe it was, they didn't realize what was on television all the time, but I thought it was a, gr a tremendous overreaction uh, to, uh, trying to push their values on a larger group of people. And I didn't, I didn't, I never, I never, I've never liked that. Tell me a little bit about, um, Ed Ferrara. It's written in mid May, uh, according to Wade Keller that Ed Ferrara gave us two week notice citing stress from the long hours as the reason. And, um, McMahon didn't want to lose Ferrara. So he asked him to take a week to reconsider. And of course we know that. Ed has sort of been the right-hand man of Vince Russo. Um, there was conflicting reports about why he wanted out. 
And Wade Keller says, uh, it's just the long hours. Obviously he stays and, and he winds up leaving when Russo does in the fall. We haven't talked a lot about Ed, but I guess we should mention that, uh, when Ed does jump to WCW, he becomes the person who portrayed the parody of yourself. Uh, chat me up about your time working with Ed Ferrara and why he wanted to quit here. I think he wanted to quit. I think he was getting burned out. Uh, and, and that was about the time that either SmackDown was getting organized or getting ready to be launched or had been launched. And those guys were very, they, they, they perceived and and rightfully so that, uh, they had all they could say grace over writing a weekly two hour primetime show every week with no, re, no repeats, no all season. So, uh, I think they got burned out. Simple as that Conrad, there are two of them. We're doing the, doing that basically most of the heavy lifting in that respect. Uh, but when Ed, uh, there, when Russo left, there was no doubt in anybody's mind. That was a package deal. At least, at least in my estimation, I don't think that Russo was going to Atlanta without Ed Ferrara. And because uh, there was a certain amount of leverage that Russo had at that time from a his creative success that he earned at WWE, that he could, he could pull that off. And they did have good chemistry. They did have good symmetry. The only thing that they didn't do well sometimes was get a little too far out there. Now here's the deal. Oh yeah. Well, you say that Jr. but God damn it. They, they look at the ratings, right? Well, they didn't do the, they didn't do the ratings alone. Then they won't say that either. Cause they know it's not true. And they never said that, that I'm aware of, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, the, there was a big, it's a team effort to, to have big wins like that. And, but they were a good team. And I, I just felt when Russo left that Ed was, was either joined to hip or trailer hitched or whatever, but they're going to go together. No surprise whatsoever. I never had any cross words with Ed uh, to the extent of, you know, being heated. I didn't agree with everything they did by any stretch of imagination. And I'm sure that they didn't agree with my, uh, work sometimes. But I never had any personal issues with them. The only issues I had with Ed and Russo that, that came to a head was of the Oklahoma thing where Ed would uh, impersonate me doing with the Bell's palsy. And uh, my younger daughters, my daughters are young then, uh, they, they, they're sometimes their friends that they, they would get together. Folks got to understand this. You know, I didn't play a character, I was me. And all that stuff about the Bell's palsy was not an act, it was not work, it wasn't a storyline. And it was very, it was very, uh, unsettling in my family, in my life and in, in me. So, uh, oh God, I just hate to think about that shit. Any, the, but that pissed me off because it made my kids cry because they didn't understand it was set. That was totally satirical. It was just, I, I tell them, honey, it's just bad kids. It's a bad television. It sucks. They're not getting any ratings that I was aware of. They're not going to draw any money with it. And they didn't as, as I was aware of. So using great television time to stick it up with one of Vince's right-hand guys ass. And, and I don't, Hey, I'm not angry. I'm not angry at him now. I wasn't that, that angry at him then. Uh, but that's how I looked at that deal. That was a package deal. And when they went down there and they got back at Jr. for whatever reasons that they, if that was their case, they did a nice job of it, but it hurt my kids feelings. And I didn't forgive them for that for a long time. I'm sure we'll talk about that, uh, in more detail another time, but, uh, I didn't expect to get into it today, but I, I do want to ask when we think about that pairing of Russo and Ed, 
What, in your opinion, you know, and this is a weird sentence, but I think you'll, you'll get where I'm going. What makes Russo the leader and Ed the sidekick and why not vice versa? It's interesting in these dynamics sometimes where one guy maybe has just as great or better ideas, but the other guy's a better communicator or he's more out front or he's more open or what was the dynamic and why was Russo sort of the lead guy and Ed was uh, the right hand guy. Really good question, Conrad. That's why you're the goddamn podfather. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking could have been, uh, if I'm not wrong here, that Russo go, was on the scene first because he was working in the magazine area, doing some writing. Uh, and then he got, you know, he, he finally figured his way to get into creative and then eventually on television because he and I were doing a little morning, Saturday morning. So, so for a while there. Uh, call-in show for God's sakes, live every Saturday morning. I saw I need to do one more job. If I got found a full-time gig on Sunday, every Sunday, I'd have been really happy. I worked every day, but I think he came there first. Uh, he was kind of a company guy that kind of evolved throughout this, through the system and got a, a chance to make more money and, and do a different kind of gig that he thought was cool. Uh, he wanted to do, which is fine. It was everybody's goal. I guess. But I think Ed came along after that. And Ed had done some writing in, in, uh, LA and in the Southern California. Ed also was a, uh, indie wrestler. A lot of people don't know. He used to have a picture hanging up of him in tights with bleach blonde hair. Looked like a, a poor man's buddy Rogers from back in the fifties. Uh, and, uh, we used to get a kick out of that, but Ed, Ed, Ed is a big fan and a smart guy. Your question is right on the money. Uh, I would say this, and I think most of that know both these fellas. We'll probably tell you that uh, Russo is a lot more of the alpha male, uh, over the top, a little louder, uh, a little bit more, you know, uh, control guy. And I think Ed liked that role because Russo had to do most of the pitching, not mo- had to do a lot of the pitching and the interaction with Vince. And after a while, some people figure out if I can keep my job and I can make money and I can contribute to the company without having to have direct interaction with Vince on a daily hourly basis. I'll probably last year longer. So that's kind of how I think that worked out. They, they were a good team. They had, they had good chemistry. They liked each other seemingly. And, uh, and they, and they had, look, you can't take away from whether you like their songs they wrote or you didn't. They, they were hits, right? A lot of them were hits and they sold music and that's all that matters that the results are there and they were. So I give them, I give the devil is due in that regard. The results are there for Steve Austin on Nash bridges. Uh, his debut appearance does a 9.8. Uh, he winds up doing six episodes there. He is now not just a star in the wrestling world, uh, but in the mainstream, but Wade Keller would report around this time that there's already tension building between Austin and the rock because the rock is now a baby face. And maybe now for the first time, since he's been the top dog, Austin has a legitimate threat for his number one baby face position. And rock is seven years younger than Austin. And, you know, maybe that plays into the competitive nature, but there is a little bit of tension that the boys are noticing and, and, and talking to the dirt sheets about chat me up. When did you first realize that, Hey, wait a minute. These guys may be uh, competitive rivals. Bruce has often sort of joked that Austin would say things like, Oh, that whole eyebrow raising gimmick. That ain't going to get it. Uh, and, and, and Bruce would say when, when you have the top dog start talking about guys underneath the card, like, oh, that's the shits, you know, they're getting over. 
Uh, chat me up. What was your perspective on this rivalry? I never thought, uh, I never thought it was a big negative thing. Steve and Dwayne's, uh, relationship. Uh, I would have been very, very disappointed in both those guys. If they didn't have a competitive, uh, uh, feel for, for, for their, each other's uh, at work, they didn't, they didn't, they never, Austin didn't associate with anybody that I, I can remember on a personal level. Uh, and he just wasn't that kind of guy. He, he got, he did his work and he went home. Uh, but I like the competitive nature. Look, here's the other deal. We leave out a lot of things here. And, and there was, I didn't read about this. I didn't see way talk about, well, then how did the undertaker take this deal? Right. How did, how did some of the other top baby faces take the rock getting over and becoming and flipping to a baby face? It's inevitable that you have a young, brilliant stallion of a heel that at some point in time, because of his look, his athleticism, his overall charisma, that he's going to become a fan favorite to some degree. Also became a fan favorite as this, you know, kick ass baby face and rock became a huge baby face by being a little smooth, silkier, you know, more, and he's more of a wrestler, also more of a brawler. Uh, so they had different styles, but I, I applaud the fact that they wanted to compete. And I'm about to tell you, they weren't the only guys that wanted that spot. That's the spot, man. So uh, I like that whole, uh, I like that whole, that whole dichotomy of those other way they work. And I never had one time that I could ever recall. And I signed and both those guys are friends of mine. And I, I had a close relationship with both of them during that time and, and today, but shoot, I don't remember them coming to me and said, you gotta, you gotta get that summit straightened up. JR, I'm going to go home or hey, you know, rock always called me Jim, Jim. What's the hell is the deal with nothing? They both were jocks. They both are alpha males. They both were high, uh, motivated, high overachieving dudes. So anything less than being competitive, I don't like to, I'm not trying to kick Wade Keller on the bus here by any stretch of the imagination, but really was it that, was it really that big a story? Well, the boys are saying that's his first problem. Well, the boy, the boys are saying, okay, all right, well, good, good for your source, your honor. Let's talk about the uh, no mercy pay-per-view. It goes down in Manchester, England. It's sold out. Of course, uh, we haven't talked a lot about these UK only pay-per-views as a talent, as someone in the office, was this more fun or less fun than a regular United States pay-per-view? Didn't have any difference. Uh, we, everything was, that's the one thing about WWE, the same TV crew, same director, same technical director. Everything was, it was just, a, it was a, except for the, some technicians that you had to use over there. But you know, like a cameraman here and there, some something like that. Somebody behind the scenes, uh, but it was just another way for the boys to make some more money. And uh, for some of them, it was a way to get out of their their wife's uh, sightline because they're out of the country. Your uh, See, main your main event there is Steve Austin getting a win on it for the world title uh, in mm -hmm. a three way over Undertaker and Hunter Hearst Helmsley and. Then you guys are back to business, uh, doing huge ratings. Again, you're going to get a 6.34 rating, uh, which is monster. Uh, the main event is Steve Austin and triple H. And during that match, it's going to be a DQ and the undertaker is going to attack Austin uh, somewhere in the mid card. That's a real sentence. The rock and, and undertaker had a casket match, which is, I mean, that just, that tells you where we are in wrestling here when that's not the main event. Uh, yeah but it breaks the all time Monday night ratings war for a competitive hour, at least during the second hour. 
Uh, you get a 7.3 for the rock and undertaker casket match. And the final quarter hour does a 7.2. Meanwhile, nitro in that same heads up segment got a 2.5. So yeah, it's one-sided here. The, uh, the night ends with a 7.8 for raw and a 2.4 for nitro. At this point, the Monday night war is done. You guys have, have won. You're spiking the, the ball. Uh, once upon a time, you guys were having conversations about, can we hang on? You know, they're gonna, they're gonna finish us off. And now you're firmly in control. Is it business as usual the entire time? Or do you start to pull your foot off the gas a little bit? Well, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it was pretty much business as usual, uh, it, because, but business as usual, meaning that it was, uh, uh, you know, the business kept growing and evolving. We're finding some success. We're doing well. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, things are kind of back to normal and we're, we're not, we're still trying to grow our business. So it was. The thing about working for Vince, people got to understand this, man. He's not a, he don't celebrate many holidays. He loves Thanksgiving because he loves to eat. Uh, he likes to have, that's his great cheat day. The greatest cheat day of the year for Vince is Thanksgiving. He's a pie eating baby. I can tell you that, man. He could beat the pie and, and he can, he, he, he was a, and you wouldn't think about looking at him. He'd eat that but he, once a, you know, that Thanksgiving, that was it. So he didn't, he didn't celebrate. He wasn't, he's not a normal cat. How can he be 70 something years old? And still doing, uh, you know, 10 multitasking with big money jobs that he's doing right now. He's a different breed of animal that either you love or you hate. That's fine. But by God, unless you're just really, really stupid, you got to respect the old son of a gun. You just got to, because he's done a lot for our business that, you know, you and I are being able to take advantage of a little bit here. So it's all, that was good. So, uh, business as usual, Conrad, you know, what's next, what's next and how can we get better? And, uh, that's kind of the, the, the order of the day. Plus there was going to be a lot of talent available when the, when the, when all this thing was said and done. I mean, when the WCW finally went belly up, there were a lot of really good talents there. They're going to need jobs. So we kept our eye on all that situation and kept planning on what we're going to do next. So that was always the thing about Vince. What are we doing next? What have you done for me today? Well, one of the things you want to do next is you want to have a conversation with and Jericho is coming up with a, uh, expiration date of July 27th in WCW. And, uh, he has his eyes set on the WWF. Of course, he grew up in the WWF and, uh, WCW's on their way down. And now he feels like this is the right time. When do you first remember, uh, you guys talking about, Hey, what about Jericho? Well, some of us were big fans of Chris Jericho's work for uh, a, a good long while. And the guys like a Cornette and some of those other cats that were, uh, you know, Cornette had used Chris and uh, Smoky Mountain with Lance Storm. They're a great tag team. Storm and, uh, and Chris were really good. Uh, so there were a lot of fans of Jericho's in the, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the gallery. The issue I was going to have was convincing Chris that he'll make more money working for us than he would working for WCW under on salary. In essence, uh, the upside of the monies in WWE were unlimited. Uh, but the other issue I had was, you know, uh, his height. Seriously. Now, if he was like, what? Yeah. He, you know, there was a, that 
that old promoter thing there. He's not six, three or four. He's under six feet. Now he, he'll be as good as anybody on your roster and he, and he generally is, but I had to be able to sell that. So I re, I started, uh, going to Florida. I meet Jerry Briscoe down there in Tampa, who works where Jerry lives. And, uh, we had a meeting at the, I remember, never forget. It's funny. Funny. You remember certain things. I remember the rock ordering that grilled chicken and those black beans and the yellow rice. And I remember uh, Jericho and Briscoe and myself meeting at a place called the Bombay bicycle club, probably not even in business any longer. I don't know, but, uh, we had a good meeting and I just, I, I had, I addressed the issues off the top. Wh what do you think the first issue is cash? What's the second issue? Conrad creative. There you go. That's it. So I said, I can't pay you the guarantee you're making at WCW. Just couldn't do it. I don't have the budget, but I'll tell you this. If you, we can give you this, which is a good, good payday as a downside guarantee. That's the worst you're going to do. If you get over and you believe you can get over it as you think you can, then that number is irrelevant. And that's exactly what happened. He got over and he started making seven figures and he made a lot of money there for a long time because Chris Jericho knew how to get Chris Jericho over. And he, he was a great performer and it didn't hurt this. That his debut was interrupting the rock, not a bad rub. All right. Let's talk about Shane Douglas. Sort of the tale of two talents here. Um, Keller would say with the shortage of heels, the WWF is seriously considering hiring Shane Douglas. Whose last WWF stint as Dean Douglas was a disaster on camera and in the locker room In ECW, his body is beat down and his match quality and interviews have been inconsistent. And Terry Taylor, who is still trying to live down his recommendation that the WWF hire public enemy is pushing for the hiring of Douglas. Uh, what do you remember about Douglas being discussed here? Well, we're looking, we're looking, you, you try to find a, a, a player that could come in. It's like equated to, to baseball. You want to, even if a guy's a seven or eight hole hitter, nine hole hitter, didn't contribute in that role. Then you take a look. Shane had a lot of talent, uh, and he certainly, but as, like you said, his body started breaking down and, uh, you know, hard living, uh, and, uh, hard working sometimes catches up to people at different times. He was a very, and still is a very bright guy and a high IQ, very intelligent. And I was with him. Eddie, Eddie Gilbert gave Shane Douglas his name. Uh, and. I remember when uh, Crockett bought Watts and Shane was on the team, uh, Jim Barnett was in love with him. Oh <laughs> my God. And we'd say, uh, Mr. Barnett, I got You don't say anything about this to anybody, right? No, no. He's hung like a horse. Oh God. So it's <laughs> a funny shit. And, but that was, that was Shane's introduction. He, he was a classic baby face, blue eyed, blonde, good body, but it was time. He, he, there was just. We brought him in because we thought there was something left. And unfortunately there wasn't enough left, uh, to take him to the next level. But at one point in his career, he'd, he would have been spot on right there, but it just, just different time, different place, different situation. All right. Let's talk about, uh, over the edge, uh, on the Sunday night heat show before the pay-per-view meet would, uh, beat Brian Christopher, not the type of meat that, uh, Jim Ross likes to season. Mm -mm. Uh, but a different type that maybe nobody liked to season. The Hardy boys got a win over gold dust and blue meanie Vince McMahon and Midian fought to a no contest 
when the corporate epic, epic battle <laughs> when the corporate ministry interfered and uh quote unquote broke his ankle so he couldn't ref the pay-per-view main event uh, and we're going to actually open the show with a tag match it's our champions kane and x-pac going to defeat uh, mark henry and d'lo brown uh, what do you remember about this match? You saw it this week for the first time in a long time. Uh, good effort by all four guys, four guys. I like a lot. So I'm biased. Uh, you know, all those guys I've had a part, some, in some role in their career at this very day. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. It just showed that the, the, the lead opposition in a pay-per-view in the philosophy and the mindset of many is that you start off with something hot, something good, set the bar, get the crowd up, get the crowd invested emotionally and all that. And those guys did a nice job. That's they're two good teams and K and X-Pac were, were, you know, very good. I mean, they were really good. And then he had Mark and D'Lo. Mark was very green, but you know, Mark was such an attraction and, and D'Lo was underrated as hell. The only bad thing about poor old D-Lo is I, I suggested a gimmick and they, and they went with it and it ended up being the drizzling shits was we had him wear a chest protector because he did the frog splash and we thought that the frog splash has been used in a lot of other areas, notwithstanding Eddie uh, Guerrero, but guys that do big splashes off the, t- you know, they just not do the, the jackknife thing. Uh, but I said, well, make it more effective, make it a little different. And see, it's the issue with that chest protector, which may be loaded. Wink, wink. Uh, it would might help him get an unfair advantage as a as a heel. It was a shitty idea on my part, so I apologize, Delo, if you're listening. Well, let's talk about the next match here. It's a hardcore match, and you and I've never talked about your opinion on hardcore title matches. Is Al Snow getting a win over Hardcore Holly? Uh, they start the match in the ring, but of course they go through the arena stands and the backstage area, concession stands. They're all over the place. Uh, what was your, your take on this You for it? You against it? Uh, I like the hardcore stuff because it reminded me of various wrestling territories, uh, brass knucks champion. Uh, and as it was originally designed and then the hardcore title morphed into a comedy division. Uh, and that didn't trip my trigger. It was, uh, again, the the insatiable desire to create comedians out of wrestlers and, uh, and pratfalls and, and silly shit. Uh, I just didn't understand. I think the, the, to me, some of those matches became, unfortunately for the talent who worked their ass off, uh, bathroom breaks and concession stand breaks and so forth or channel changing breaks. It lost what it was meant to be. And, uh, it became, uh, uh again, a, uh, uh, SNL skit with physicality, not all of them, but that's at the end. Hey, look, when you get seven or eight or multiple title changes in one match, really? And you want me to take this seriously. So it, 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 it uh, disintegrated a little bit in the perception in my view. Let's talk about, um, well, I don't know how to transition here. The next match was supposed to be the Godfather defending the intercontinental title against the blue blazer. And that's when the accident happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course it wasn't shown on the broadcast, a video package aired, and then a, a blue blazer interview was being shown on the pay-per-view and in the arena, this is when the accident happened. And after 
The video package is over. We would see a graphic on the screen showing Owen Godfather. And you said, we're going to an interview conducted earlier tonight with Kevin Kelly and the blue blazer. And then you said, we have big problems out here. Um, after the interview's over, we see a live crowd shot and you say, ladies and gentlemen, when you're doing live television, a lot of things can happen. And sometimes they are not good. The blue blazer, as we know, was Owen Hart was going to make a very spectacular superhero like entrance from the rafters and something went terribly wrong here. Certainly Owen Hart, blue blazer, various, very serious situation here at this point. Uh, he's being attended to by the EMTs and this is not part of the entertainment here tonight. This is as real as real can be. And the EMTs are attending to Owen in the ring now. And we are at a little bit of a loss at this situation. I've been doing this for more years than I'd like to admit. And this is one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. This is not your typical wrestling storyline. This is a real situation. Owen Hart was to ascend in the superhero like entrance from the ceiling of this arena and something terribly, terribly went wrong. And I don't know if the harness broke or what the malfunction was, but we are going to keep our cameras on this crowd at this point in time, simply because we're going to move on ladies and gentlemen, as best we can. Phew, man, that's a hell of an ad lib, huh? I got, I got, I had, a, I had a process. The King and I had to process a lot of information that was fluid. It kept changing, kept evolving. So it's hard to get your feet on the ground and know, where are we? What has happened? How is Owen more, most importantly of all. And by, and by the way, are we going to go, are we going to go home now? Are we going to continue the show? What's going on? So I was getting bits and pieces of information because those decisions, decisions were being made, uh, by Vince and, and, uh, and the staff, uh, on the, on the, on the pay-per-view side. Uh, of course, everybody's concerned was Owen, but I was just getting bits and pieces of information and, uh, that's challenging. That's really challenging. So it wasn't the first time. It wasn't the last time I had to speak on that matter in that show. Jim, I hate to be, um, I mean, I know this can't be comfortable to talk about, but did you see it happen or when did you know that something was amiss? Interesting story. Uh, I saw part of it happen. Uh, I think the King who was sitting at my right, a two man booth, uh, at ringside, I think he, he may have seen Owen. Uh, I think he was looking up at the ceiling there at Kemper in Kansas city. I was looking at my monitor. I, I became a, I've become normally a prisoner of my monitor when I'm broadcasting, because th what you see on the monitor is what you gotta, it's what you gotta narrate. That's, that's the soundtrack that you're looking for. It's what you're seeing there. And how does it make you feel? And what do you say? So where I saw Owen, uh, was shocking because he came right through my screen flash right down. It was like a falling star right out of heaven. It's amazing. And little did I know what symbolically that would mean later on, but I saw him flash through my monitor, little monitor, not a big, like they use now a little bit bigger, smaller monitor, but it was a blip. And, uh, then I looked up and I saw him, his impact on, uh, on the top rope, the turnbuckle area. And it was, uh, hard to process Conrad. It really is still hard to process. When you told me we we're going to do this show, I was, I was leery. I still am not because it's not gonna be a great show. It's a hell of, hell of a topic, but for me to be able to tell my story to our folks, I got to relive it again. I got to, I got to re-image it. 
And damn, I, for years, I avoided that for years. I looked at the, I looked at the little announcement that, uh, I got a, about a 10 or 15 second notice to make about his death. Uh, and that's what I saw before I wrote Slobberknocker in my life in wrestling. I knew I had to cover it, but I didn't want to watch the whole damn show. And so I, I watched that portion so I could at least be, I get in the moment when we're writing, I could feel what I was feeling again. And it's just not a good feeling. So, uh, I'm glad to tell the story, but I want to tell you, there's just nothing. I think sometimes we talk about this stuff, all well, the Montreal screw job and these, all these things. Well, that shit just moves on. Right. Montreal screw jobs. I've got cash and creative. God, folks don't get crazy on this thing. Creative was not agreeable to all the participants and the cash was what it was, blah, blah, blah. This was a human life of a person that was universally liked. And then we could say as a, as a, as a, uh, civilian wrestling fan. Well, that's nothing unusual. Yes, it is in wrestling because it's a jealousy business with, with, with fragile egos and hostile personalities and volatile people. And Owen Hart was none of those things. I've never met a guy in the wrestling business or a woman that's more universally loved, liked and respected than Owen Hart. And I just, you know, it's just, we lost such a phenomenal human being, uh, in that situation. But I, I looked at, looked back at it, caught it through the monitor and happened to look up sitting right there a few feet away. And, and his body hit that uh, top and it was like him being expelled from a car wreck. It was uh, so disturbing. When you, um, when you see that happen, I don't know the technology. So forgive me. Do you hit like a cough button? Do you hit like the backstage? Are you hitting a button somewhere to say, get somebody fucking out here? Uh, yeah, I said something along those lines, but there's a lot of uh, communication to the back. Uh, cameraman could talk to the back. Uh, the, yeah, the audio guy, you know, that was there, uh, there's all kinds of texts that had communication abilities to, to talk to the back. And they, I think everybody was on their, on their phone, so to speak, they're on their, on their headset. Uh, to say, you know, get word that, Hey, look, this is a bad thing out here. Cause it was, I think it was kind of, it was dark as I recall. Uh, and it was just, or it seemed to be dark. Maybe that's just my, my own mindset, but everybody, it, everybody knew right away. Now here's the thing. There are people in the audience and people and some of the, uh, uh, EMT type people, I think they believed it was part of the show. And some people even thought it was a mannequin or something. But, uh, I, it, he hits and I, and I look and he hits and then it's like, wait a minute. What do we just, what is that? What happened? What just happened? What the hell happened here? And, uh, I remember the King got right out of his chair and ran over there and I stayed back cause somebody has got to stay there to, you can't, we're the voice of the damn show. You can't leave it. You can't leave your post. So, uh, King went over there and, and uh, then with King, was there a few seconds and he came back to me and Jerry's face was ashen white, white as snow. His eyes had were teared over and, uh, he just looked at me. We gained eye contact. He just shook his head. No. So the King for either had a premonition or just what he perceived was we were seeing the last moments of his life flashed before our very eyes. Cause that's what, that was really what happened. So it was a, 
it was a treacherous day, man. Some of those memories are just brutal, really just brutal. And I can only imagine how they are for the fans and his friends and most importantly, his family. So uh, not poor us, not poor JR, poor Jerry, but, but you know, man, it was a, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. There's nothing good. I don't know. Well, something good came out. What? Tell me somebody out there can tw- tweet me at JRSBBQ. What the hell good came out of it? So Nothing. work real hard now to, to, to throw my ass under the bus, but I don't know what good came out of that situation. It was a bad ass day. So, you know, now, I mean, this decision is going to be criticized for a long time. You guys have to decide what to do. Um, you're going to go to the back and, um, you know, you've got to try to figure out what to do and you're going to show the next match is Val Venus and Nicole Bass versus Jeff Chira and Deborah. And a lot of people would say the decision to continue the show was uh classless or a bad call. I mean, there's lots of different words used to describe this decision. None of them positive. You were, you, this wasn't your call. The decision comes down from the top, but it is one that you had to make in a split second. When did you know? Uh, the show goes on. We've got to find a way to continue the show. We had no time on the headsets to have long, elongated discussions. There was no real conversations taking place. I was sitting there receiving information, trying to process it, write things down. You know, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the bullet points of the, of the matter, but I had no time to write some script or a lead in or anything. Uh, just kept getting new information and more information. And finally, you know, we're, I don't think we ever said we may have, but I don't think we ever made a point to say the show's going to continue because to draw attention to it. Uh, so that's my take on it. Uh, Conrad, I, I, I'm not sure there was ever any, at least in my headset, there was no conversation about not continuing the show, but that I'm positive that had, uh, the conversation took place off air, so to speak. So it was, a uh, it was tough, man. It was really tough at how to, how do you handle that kind of stuff? And here's the thing. We talked about this thing, things like this before. Was it a mistake to continue the show? Arguably? Yes. At that time, I don't know that I would have had the courage or the foresight, uh, to make that decision because you know, of the, all the people that bought the show and expecting a show, the cable companies, the issues it's going to cause. I guess, you know, I don't know. There's no good reason. You can't justify doing it. It was the right thing at that time. At least that was what it was thought to be. Whether it was or it wasn't, it, that's what happened. But I don't know that I would have had the balls, the grapefruits, as Mr. McMahon would have, as to to make that call. It's, it's a tough call. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's not called a pass interference. What would you think of the call? I wouldn't have done it. I'm going home. Uh, I, I'm leaving. We're, we're going to, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to continue. You know, we've got to do something else. We've got to figure this thing out when this is going to be replaced or how we're going to do it or the matches that you want to see tonight are going to be tomorrow night on Raw. Because that was a luxury we had. If there was a storyline that we needed to do, it could be 24 hours post, 24 hours is not going to hurt us. But again, now we're talking about the goddamn storylines, right, which is stupid. Who cares? It's exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, I, I, I didn't, I would not have done it. And it's hey, look, all these years later, 
it's easy for me to go look in hindsight and say, Oh, I would have done that. Oh God, I would never book that. You know, no, at that, that day, I didn't feel like it was the wrong thing to do because I was in shock of what I just witnessed. And when we were told we were going to go on, it was so, I was, it was a numbing deal. I didn't, you know, I was nonplussed about continuing. And then, especially when we found out the, the, uh, the, the end game of that whole accident, what, what the outcome was for Owen. You know, nobody knew what was happening and, and, and you're the voice of this matter is, is Vince, you know, we've heard as fans that Vince is in your, in your ear trying to produce who's in your ear this day. Is it Vince? Is it Bruce? And, and what are they saying to say, or are you all, I mean, are you just sort of shooting from the hip freestyle? Well, no, I wasn't shooting from the hip. Uh, uh, I had, I had to get the information that I was mentioning, kept processing new information because things kept changing. Uh, you know, the Owens is, is being taken to the hospital, whatever. All, there was an update every few seconds. It seemed like I got most of that. If I, if I recall correctly from, uh, Kevin Dunn, uh, the executive vice president and the uh, executive producer of the, of the company, a, a Titan television, WWE TV, whatever rich guy. Uh, and, uh, so Kevin kind of helped us kind of, he helped us walk through that thing and, and navigate it. But he was, he was the voice for me and he was getting information from security, from the meds, medical people, from Vince, cable company, cable companies. So Kevin was kind of that clearing house on that deal. And he was funneling the information to me in succinct sound bites, uh, to, uh, you know, provide more information. So we keep the audience updated until we could, came to some sort of resolution. Cause even at that time, I wasn't sure. I didn't know Owen had, I wasn't at that time was still alive before I, before I got the word and had to make this announcement. Uh, but he was still alive. And so, and I didn't know if the show was, I didn't even think about the show not going on until we made the announcement that he passed. And then it's got it hit my mind. Or we're going to, we're going to keep, or, you know, I'm thinking to myself out loud and thought out loud. I'm thinking to myself, are we going to stay here? We're going to work. And, uh, we did. And that's, you know, that was a tough decision. It'll always be a wrong decision for a lot of folks. It can never change someone's mind. I understand that. And over the years, I've mellowed a little bit in my, uh, my, uh, wrath on, at some, on certain things, but I still steadfast that we probably should have called it a night and moved on. Yeah. I mean, I think most people agree with that now. That's not the call that was made though. So you guys are a package for this next match. Um, and then we see a live shot of the crowd and you said, well, ladies and gentlemen, again, uh, Owen was scheduled to descend from the top of the Kemper arena again, in a superhero like entrance in his blue blazer character. And something has gone terribly wrong with the equipment that Owen Hart was being lowered down to the ring and the paramedics are working on Owen Hart. And let me tell you. We are going to have, and we've already had some entertaining things happen as a part of this show. Uh, I don't know another way to put it. This is not a wrestling angle. This is real life. Owen Hart, the equipment malfunctioning is being attended to right now by a host of EMTs. And we are not going to put this on television. This is not a sensationalistic attempt to leave a mark here on this event. We don't know exactly what malfunctioned, obviously something in the apparatus we assume that's all we're doing is assuming that went wrong unless Owen inadvertently released himself before he was near the ring. 
So again, we will have our mixed tag matchup and we will have the rest of this broadcast. But the bigger issue now is that a a human being, Owen Hart has been terribly injured here live on this broadcast. Um, Mm. there's Mm. so many things that have happened here, but right now, nothing is more important than the health and welfare of not only a great athlete, but a very unique and a good human being who is now being attended to in the ring. And again, I can reiterate the best way I know how. Uh, maybe I'm not being as articulate as I would like to be. I hope you can understand that this was not, I repeat, this was not a wrestling angle. This was not part of the storyline. This is a terribly tragic situation. And the EMTs are now giving Owen Hart external heart massage. Uh, several folks are here to attend to him. And around this time, uh, Jerry comes back and sits at the broadcast table. And you said to Jerry King, I was just reiterating to the fans. This is not part of the show. We're here to entertain and have fun, but this is neither. And Jerry very somberly says, no, it doesn't look good at all. All right. Yeah. He, he, uh, the look on his face told that story too. You know, it was, it was terrible. Well, you know, all I'm doing is just trying to, you know, uh, provide information to the viewer and to the wrestling fan out of respect and, and, and the, it was the right thing to do, but it was not, it was, it was, a walking a tightrope sometimes when you're, I, 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 I look back at some of the great, uh, and I don't consider myself one of these, by the way, but it made me feel like uh, being like a, a war correspondent and you're in an active zone, uh, a hot zone, and uh, you're all, you're trying to provide information, uh, and there's no script and there's nobody there with a cue card. There's nobody in my ear telling me what to say. And it was such a heartbreaking thing. And, but again, it's, but it's more shocking. The heartbreak came later, not too long later, but the, the, it was so shocking. You know, it's like, I can't believe that, that I just witnessed after the fact again, one of my, one of the most respected men I know die before my very eyes. I had never in my life seen someone die before my very eyes. You didn't know I at didn't, this point he was dead though, right? No, no. But the, my point was, is that uh, this, all, everything started changing the outlook, my, my attitude or everything new, new information. I was on uh, like mind brain overload, man, trying to, and hey, look, we're still going to have matches. How do you balance what you're seeing on your monitor or, or to, uh, to, to what you got, what you've been, your backstory, which is the story. It was just really hard. So that whole, that whole night became evolved, 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 and it never turned a good corner. It never went to a good place. We did not have uh, a happy ending whatsoever. No, and it's hard to even imagine that, you know, you guys are going to try to do wrestling promos, but after this, we would cut to a backstage interview with Jeff Jarrett and Deborah, and you could see they're both upset. Deborah's trying to stay in character and cut the promo. Uh, but Jeff quickly says, Oh, and we're praying for you, buddy. And then he tries to go back to talking about a wrestling angle and you can tell he's shaken up. Uh, and allegedly this is, you know, they would move Owen past him, you know, on the gurney as, as he's doing this, this is, I mean, there's no easy way to talk about this. He's going to go have a match with, with Val Venus and Nicole Bass and, Mm. um, does a guitar shot and Jared, you know, who cares? 
Um, exactly. Who cares? Nobody, nobody cared. And, and the crowd didn't care. I'm not telling you that that mixed match was a, was a bad booking. I'm not saying that whatsoever, but it was always going to be an attraction match. A mixed tag is not a heavy duty wrestling angle, but more often than not, and neither was this one. Uh, and our, it was a mixed tag, right? So anyway, the audience tuned out. I uh, mostly uh, Lawler and I tuned out and I don't, I can tell you this right now until I, we talked about, you know, prepare for the show. I could have no more told you what was on that card. Aside from that one incident that happened, I couldn't tell you who won, who lost nothing. It, none of it mattered anymore. I wanted that gone from my memory. I often say, and especially since Jan died in March of 17, that I'm refusing now to leave my house with any negatives in my carry on. My ass came to Las Vegas with no negatives in the carry on cause I'm around people. I love at this great event, but man, oh man, that was just, it was so, uh, I don't know. It's so, it, all, now we're just, all these flashes are coming to my head now. Just, it's, it's, God dang, it's hard, hard to articulate. I feel like I was back in Kansas city. It's, it's not good. The, uh, next match is an eight man tag team match. Um, there's a lot of guys in it. No one cares. Not uh, a bit. Not a damn. I don't know if they cared if the, the, if the Owens accident had to happen. After, frankly. after the match, you make the announcement. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, earlier tonight here in Kansas city, tragedy befell the world wrestling federation and all of us. Owen Hart was set to make an entrance from the ceiling and he fell from the ceiling. I have the unfortunate responsibility to let everyone know that Owen Hart has died. Owen Hart has tragically died from that accident here tonight. Who who gives you the news and, and why is now the right time to convey that message? And I don't know if it's right. I don't know the right time. We just got the information. You know, it's going to get out. And I think, uh, WWE wanted to control the narrative and just give the news first, uh, that he, that he had passed. Uh, I remember this about that announcement. Uh, we were, we were, I think we're in something like you said, some sort of package or something. And, uh, we're, they're counting us out of the package, you know, uh, one minute type thing. So that means one minute to your back, you know, simple stuff. And, uh, Kevin Dunn says, JR, we're going to come back and do it on camera, you and King. And you got to give everybody an update on Owen's condition. And I said, nobody's giving me an update on Owen's condition. Oh, JR, he's dead. He died. And, you know, nobody told me. I didn't say that. Hell, I just listened. And then he says, and we're back in 10, 9. So I got 10 seconds. I got 10 seconds to figure out what I'm going to say. Not, it might be the most compelling. How how could it not be the most compelling thing I've ever said on television? Serious, heartbreaking, uh, legitimate, just crestfallen. And I got 10 seconds to come up with the verbiage. So I quite frankly, uh, uh, surprised I did what I did. Uh, but I, it was from the heart and now the numbness sets in. Owen Hart is dead and the numbness set in the, and I couldn't go cry. I couldn't go be alone for a second with my thoughts. I sat right there in that chair next to the King and we finished the damn show. I just, I needed to get out of there. 
And that's why I've been so resistant over the years, even talking about this matter. It just brings back the worst memories of my entire career. And look, I've had everything about wrestling has been so poignant in my life. You know, I mean, you and I've talked about this Conrad about when the road warriors returned to, uh, the, uh, WWE at Hammerstein ballroom was not, my dad had a heart attack and died in Oklahoma. At least I, I used to kid uh, somebody about, well, dad, at least he got to ride a helicopter one time. Uh, so the, uh, so then my, I was in the UK capital combat when my mother died, boom, heart attack. Both of them were 64, by the way. So, uh, but this, because I saw it, I was there. It's not like my mom and dad died. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make this thing a country music song, but when you witness something like that, Conrad, it's a whole new ball game. And that's what we did. And I had that image in my head It's burned there. And I do all I can every day that I can just to get it out of the, get it out. I don't want to bring it with me. Although the other memories of Owen are phenomenal, phenomenal. He's one of a kind, but that night was the, it, it changed my life, it changed my life. And I'm just, I wonder sometimes if that prayer to God, it never does to anybody else. And something like this. Would the show go on or would I mean, the show end? It, it has to stop. You know, I mean, I, I don't know that anybody, I mean, I think given the benefit of hindsight, I mean, if this happened tomorrow and Lord knows we don't want it to, but if it did, I mean, full refund refunds, everybody goes home. Uh, I mean, what, who cares? You know, we're talking about silly wrestling angles and a, and a doggone ticket to a show. I mean, who cares what the house was? Go, go home. Sorry. This is. Yep. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree with you. You gotta go. You got And again, on that night, the, all those, all those live rounds being fired and all the, you could only imagine the chaos backstage. I mean, it wasn't, even if Owen had not been arguably the most popular guy in the company, which I think he was that there was still been chaos, confusion, hysteria, because there's absolutely in our world at that time. I'm aware of no precedent. Other wrestlers had died in the ring. You know, like uh, God bless the silver King who passed away a week or so ago, heart attack in the ring, but something like this, I don't think it ever happened like this. Nothing. So there was no precedent. How do you react? I don't know. I don't know how you react. Uh, we just, at, when we found out we we're moving forward, we're getting back in the truck and we're going to drive on down the road a little farther. Uh, the only thing you can do is uh, we, we had it in, uh, if you ever said Jr. ever call something in, I would tell you, go back and watch some of those matches post announcement of Owen's passing. And you'll hear a no fat Oki calling it in. I'm sorry about that. Couldn't offend anybody at that time. Oh, nobody cares. Look, look, Mick Foley says that, uh, he was sitting in front of a TV monitor watching and, um, he saw a shot of the crowd and around that time, Pat Patterson came in the room and said that Owen had fallen off the catwalk. That was some 60 feet above the rip. And he says he's saying prayers as he races down the hallway and he arrived, uh, just as Owen was being wheeled into the ambulance. Hmm. Uh, the rock would say that he was in the dressing room, going over his match with triple H and China and Sergeant slaughter comes in the room and says, Owen is hurt. And he said, Oh, come on. Are you serious? Or are you ribbing? 
He would write, Owen was known for his pranks. And I thought maybe this was another example of his twisted sense of humor. <laughs> no, Sarge said, it looks pretty bad. They're working on him in the middle of the ring. So he goes straight to the curtain. And when he reaches the gorilla position, he sees everyone gathered around with a look of shock on their faces, just disbelief. And people are crying and hugging quote. And then it hit me. This is real. I walked up to the curtain and looked out and the EMTs were working on Owen in the middle of the ring, giving him CPR. And the crowd was on its feet, absolutely silent. And I thought, my God, that's my friend. I have to go out there. And Vince McMahon was standing there watching everything on the monitors. And he was in shock, just like the rest of us. Vince, I said, I want to go out there. What do you think? And Vince just stared at me with a look on his face that seemed to say, Rock, that's up to you. After a few minutes, Vince spoke. He says, if you go out there, Rock, those people are really going to react to you. They may think this whole thing is a work. So I waited anxiously, helplessly by the curtain until they wheeled Owen through on a stretcher. And one of the EMTs was straddling Owen, pumping his chest, desperately administering CPR. And I walked alongside them and said a prayer as I looked at Owen's face. Then I helped them load the stretcher into the ambulance and I climbed into the passenger side of the vehicle and looked in the back and they were still working fiercely on Owen. And I kept praying that God would save my friend's life. I was completely numb. And now somehow we had to deal with the task of going out there and performing. We, uh, talked about the rest of our match, tried to finish putting things together, but it was almost impossible because we were so worried. And two minutes before we were scheduled to hit the stage, we were told that Owen died and he started to think about his performance. And he knows that says, that sounds strange, but he was asking himself, can I really go out there? Not should I go out there, but can I, am I capable of performing? And he envisioned Owen saying, DJ, you have to go out there. And he personally felt comfortable with going on because he knew Owen and believed Owen would have wanted that. What say you, Jim, do you think Owen would have wanted the show to continue? I think so. Maybe not the popular answer folks, but I can only give you guys honesty. Uh, we've talked about McMahon's Vince's, uh, uniqueness and his, he's not the average cat. Neither was this uh, Owen Hart cat. I mean, he was a wonderful guy. He loved what he did and he loved the fans. You know, one of the great stories about Owen is that, you know, he, he had fans that were his buddies in all these towns because he'd stay with them. He'd save the hotel room over the years. There's no telling how much, how many thousands of dollars he saved by staying at a fan's house, literally at a fan's house. They pick him up in the airport, take him home. That was Owen. He loved the business and loved the fans and he loved to make them happy or excited or whatever. And I think he's, he probably said, listen, we got to finish the show for these people that paid their money and brought their kids here. And so, but again, this other side of that coin is so prominent, Conrad. It's so easy to turn that coin over and look at the other side as you say, but it still isn't the right thing to do. Jerry Lawler says that, um, he was watching everything on the monitor and you're both looking down and he said, he doesn't know why, but for some reason he glanced up and was kind of looking around and he saw a blur and then he saw the referee grab his head and he started to stagger across the ring. And Jerry then says he saw Owen lying in the ring. And that's when Jerry realized that Owen must've fallen. And he remembered elbowing you and you looked at him and Jerry said, because your mics were live, uh, live, he mouthed to you. He fell. Um, that's true. Jerry said, you looked at him puzzled and Jerry said again, Owen fell. And then he took the headset off and went to check. And he said, Owen was laying motionless and his arm from his elbow to the top of his hand was off the mat and said it was sort of like Owen was reaching out. And when Jerry 
saw that he thought Owen was moving and thought he would be okay. And later he realized that Owen's arm was shattered and it was stuck in that position. And he's, God. he's standing there looking at Owen, looking at his face. And he said he could literally see blood in Owen's face, uh, turn gray from the tip of his nose all the way down as it was settling in his body. And that's when he realized that Owen was gone. And Jimmy Corderas was the referee in the ring. And he said that he heard people yelling and saying that it was Owen yelling to get out of the way. And he says he can't confirm that, but he wouldn't doubt it. Knowing the kind of the guy he is that he was coming down and probably saw there were a lot of people at ringside who didn't realize that he was coming down and he's yelling, move out of the way. In my research, I thought that was just like, even now when Owen knows I'm about to be hurt, this is about to be real bad. He's still thinking of everybody else. Does that not say everything there is to say about Owen Hart? That's all you need to know right there. That's all you need to know. He's fallen to his death. You take a miracle, save his life from that fall. And he's thinking about making sure somebody else, no one else gets hurt too. And, uh, his heart, he's the, the heart thing. You know, he's aptly named man, the, the, the youngest of the heart kids, maybe the, you know, he, he was just, I wish people could go back and see younger fans today and they got the YouTube, you got WWE network. There's a lot of ways to access Owen Hart footage, but if you watch what he does, what he did, he was amazingly talented and he had, uh, he had a patience and a love of the business that allowed him to be extremely unselfish working with people that were less than Owen's skill level. And quite honestly, boys and girls, most of the talents that Owen wrestled were under his skill level because he was that good. Um, Jimmy says that he felt like Owen was looking out for him because he was yelling at him to move. He was still cleaning the debris out from the hardcore match before. And he says, I don't know if it was his hand or his foot, but I was holding the top rope as I was kicking debris out of the ring and moving towards that corner. And almost instantaneously, I felt something brush against my head and the top rope snapped out of my hand and snapped back and jammed my fingers. And I thought the top rope broke because they use actual rope in the WWE. It's not cable. So I'm looking at it and the rope's intact. And I'm like, what the hell did somebody throw something? And as I turned around, you know, he was there. You're trying to put two and two together, but you can't. And he says the next day he found out from Jerry Lawler that when Lawler saw, he thought, my goodness, he's going to fall on Jimmy. So he was that close. And, and maybe that is the voice that he heard saying, move out of the way that it was Owen trying to look out for him, which is just unbelievable. And. Right or wrong, um, Vince Russo has caught some criticism about bringing back the Blue Blazer. And, you know, at different times, Brett has been pretty vocal about saying that Owen didn't like this stunt and, and wasn't comfortable with it. Um, did you ever have a conversation with Vince Russo about, you know, making Owen the Blue Blazer and whether or not he had any, any sort of guilt or weird feelings about this? Well, uh, the blue blazer aspect of this conversation was never really that negative to Owen. He didn't have a problem being the blue blazer. That whole stunt really 
rose to a, to a boil on, on the Sunday. Hence is why they tried so hard to get a rehearsal out of it. Uh, which I found to be somewhat crazy. Could you, you isn't, is he the only guy that could rehearse? Right. I thought that was poorly done in hindsight. Uh, I didn't have a lot to talk to Vince about Vince Russo about in that regard. Uh, but when a talent is outwardly so uncomfortable doing a specific creative piece of business, you can't force them to do it with good conscience. You can legally force them or you can call pay their hand. So if you refuse to do as you're instructed, you could, you could, you know, breach your contract. So, uh, I didn't talk to Russo. I did talk to Jimmy Corderas, of course, to give him a big hug the next day and want to know, if he, you know, what do you need? You know, you want some time off. You want, you know, it was just that kind of thing. You tried to, I was so busy, uh, Conrad on uh, that, and that day in St. Louis that, uh, after, after the pay-per-view talking to talent and trying, you know, we were doing. I didn't know what we're doing, but now because there's so goddamn many tragedies in our country and other countries, there's all kinds of grief counseling and there's, you know, uh, all kinds of things are now put in place that when you have a catastrophe, you got counselors that are on the scene and do this stuff. I don't know that that occurred in too much prominence during that time because again, unprecedented. So hopefully they, they learned things from that. They mean WWE and I think they have. They certainly haven't tried that entrance or anything remotely could close to it. Shawn Michaels thing was years before at LA at the WrestleMania. And that was iffy. I don't know why we did that. Sliding down that thing. You know, I, I, I don't know why we did that. Is it that sensational? Is it going to make the match? Or is it somebody's idea, crazy ass idea that egocentrically, they got to make sure it happens. I just didn't understand it. It just. And when a guy that understands the business comes to you and says, I'm uncomfortable or whatever, man, you got to listen. You got to listen. Cause here's the thing. What if we had not done the entrance that way? Right. So what would the fans have missed? Not a damn thing. It wasn't advertised. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know that Owen was going to, or the blue blazer was going to, you know, descend from the rafters, but you know, so you they're not, you're not cheating the fans out of anything. It's not, you didn't say it's Owen Hart in the most spectacular entrance ever on pay-per-view tune in. No. So just common sense, Conrad, when the wrestling talents put their lives on the line, their bodies on the line, if they feel like they can't execute something for God's sakes, don't put them in that position to do so. And don't overthink the goddamn wrestling business. Sometimes we do that even today. Vince Russo says the whole idea just started so innocently. We had brought back Owen's old gimmick, the blue blazer, and he was meant to be like a superhero, but a spoof on a superhero to really get over the comedic genius of Owen Hart. It was probably the Friday before the show and the show's already written. And I got a call from Steve Taylor and he goes, look, I just got a call from the people who propel sting from the rafters. They say they're going to be at our pay-per-view and they want to know if there's anything they might be able to do for the WWE. So while he's telling me this, I'm looking through the show and I see Owen and I'm saying, well, that'd really be great to live and elevate Owen's character. That'd be something special eh, and cool. Eh. Elevate his character. Jesus. So now okay, during go, the day of the pay-per-view, Owen comes up to me and he says, I rehearsed propelling from the ceiling. And when I propel down, it takes me a while to get my harness off. 
if the Godfather is in the ring first and then I propel and I got to take this harness off and the Godfather could pummel me. See, everyone at the time was thinking real, real, real reality. So he said, could my entrance be come first, then have the Godfather come out. And I said, oh, and no problem. I'll make the changes. No problem. And that was it. That was the extent of the conversation. Not enough. In hindsight, it's just not enough. I'm telling you something. You pay attention. You look at a guy like, oh, it's very expressive. If he's not beaming or laughing about something or smiling about a pay-per-view match he's going to have, you know, there's an issue. I'm suggesting to you and our listeners that there probably wasn't a lot of laughing and camaraderie in explaining this thing. And then of course you look back as you go on, you find out that the guy that was actually the rigor for sting was not the guy that WWE used. Is it true? Meltzer would write this, uh, just before all of this was going on in front of the fans at Kemper arena and being somewhat hidden from the rest of the world with Ross claiming they didn't want to sensationalize what was happening backstage. Something else was going on. Vince McMahon was setting up a scene where he'd be on a stretcher and begrudgingly taken to the hospital in an ambulance. McMahon was put in the ambulance while Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe did their comedy routine and driven away. And just as it was pulling out and after the scene was cut, Bruce Pritchard screamed that the ambulance needed to come back. Even though doing a mock angle where McMahon would be taken out in an ambulance after Hart had just died would be in the worst possible taste. It was also in the script and apparently nothing, certainly not good taste or apparently not even a death was going to make them alleviate key points in the show. Um, your response. Well, you know, again, chaos, unorganized. And I'm not saying unorganized, like all of us are incompetent. We weren't all incompetent, uh, but we had not been there before. You know, it's just, we haven't been there before. And the issue of uh, human life teetering here has never, had never been even remotely approached in, in any of our careers. So how you handle things that you've never experienced before, you don't know Conrad until you do it. I can tell you that right now, man, I, I've done some things in the last couple of years. And of course, when Jan's situation was, I did, I've never, I don't like to even think about, but they're there and they're never going away. So I just, I flipped the switch and I think of the great things that I did with her, much like I did with Owen, the fun, the laughter and the great times we had. If I don't do that, then I, I can't get out of this, the, the God dang black cloud. It's got to go away at some point. So, uh, that's, it was, it's just, uh, what a, I, like I said earlier, Hey, we were having, we were, we were in a little spot, Lawler and I in a little spot out there, but man, the back, I always, you know, I was thinking all the boys said, man, Charlie, you should be glad you weren't backstage. It was unbelievable. And the boys, some of the boys are becoming very, very emotional that some of the women were extremely emotional. They were, they were scared. A lot of people were scared. They didn't understand confusion. And, uh, it was just a. The worst day of my professional life, without a doubt. I do want to ask, you know, uh, everybody has chimed in and, and a lot of people as fast as the next day, you know, the mainstream media picks up on the decision to go forward with the show. And, you know, the company's been criticized up and down for the decision to continue the show. 
Did you ever have a conversation with Vince about it after the fact? Not right then, not in the moment, not the next day or a week later, but just later. It's been 20 years. Did it ever come up in your casual ne- conversation? Never did. Never did. Uh, I, I, uh, tell, tell people this is honest to God truth. The more often that I can avoid getting back into this dark place, the, the better off my life is. It's a great, hopefully this is an entertaining, you know, entertaining uh, presentation today for our audience and our folks are supporting the hell out of us, which we appreciate, but man, I don't want to talk about this again after today. Let's move on. You know, we're going, I know we're going to move on. Sure. I'm just saying in a, in a, in a, in a reality way. Okay. I did it and maybe, and maybe it's some, maybe I can find some cathartic benefits from doing it today, but I don't want to do it again. Owen Hart, uh, was obviously not an old man. I mean, he, he died, you know, 34 years old and Meltzer would write that there was a story going around that Owen was getting re- ready to retire from wrestling when his current contract expired in two years. Did you ever have conversations with guys when you were, you know, talking about their contracts, about what their long-term goals were. And, you know, you've told us about, oh, they got to pay their taxes and blah, blah, blah. Did you have conversations about retirement? Hey, how do you want this thing to wind up? Sure. You, you always want the guys to have a, have a, if you can, you can orchestrate it, a smooth exit, like in, in any other company, he'd been, he'd been a long time, uh, uh, you know, a loyal soldier in the wrestling business. He came from one of the greatest, if not the greatest pro wrestling family, uh, in the, in the biz. Uh, and certainly in Canada without, without any doubt. So, uh, at least that's my opinion. So, uh, I, but we talked, yeah, he, he's like everybody else. It, they were the two C's that always pop up. And for him, he was, he was making good money. Uh, but I don't think he was overwhelmed with a lot of his creative. Uh, and I thought that, uh, you know, he, he had some good moments. I thought, you know, of course him and bulldog amazing team, but I thought Owen and, and Yoko Zeno was a good team, the Ying and the Yang and the big heavy hitter and Yoko and, and Owen could do all the stuff that needed to be done prior to a finish occurring. But he, he we had talked about it. I think a lot of it too was travel. Maybe he got tired of staying in those fans houses when he was on the road. I don't know. I'm kidding, laughing. Uh, but I think his kids were the big issue too. He didn't want to be on the road all the time when they're growing up and he'd saved, say he was a very thrifty fella and he uh, knew the value of a dollar. And, uh, somebody would say he had 50 cents of the first dollar he ever made. He'd saved his money. And I thought that was just phenomenal. And, and you know, that's, they'd built their dream house there in, uh, in Alberta. And he had two children and his wife, Martha, and you know, it was good. So he wanted to, he, he was not angry when talking about retiring. His conversation about retiring to me was one of, Hey, I'm going to do my two years. I'm going to continue to save. Hope I need to make some more money if I can, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to, I'm going home. Cool. Well, let, so my deal would be this. What can we do as a company to help you facilitate that? Because look, the guy basically giving us a two year notice, right? A lot of guys don't do that, my friend. So, uh, that was the deal. He wasn't bitter or angry about the business. 
but that, you know, I think that changed. It got his attitude changed a little bit after Montreal, but he also got a new contract after Montreal for the sake of the heartbreak and all this is that the Montreal screw job had uh, caused the heart family. That's my take on that deal. wholeheartedly. Vince Jr. make Owen happy because this is going to be a tough place for him to be with the way Brett exited, but we don't want him to, we don't want to lose him. He's too valuable. And I said, well, we, he, he thinks he's been underutilized. And I said, I can't do disagree with him. He just doesn't squeak enough. The squeaky wheel gets the grease and all that good stuff. The good, good cliches. Oh, and didn't squeak a lot. He just was a soldier. And so, and Vince agreed with that, by the way, Conrad, you know, uh, we always talk about this guy's a hero here. Owen Hart after Brett left should have been the heir apparent to the top Canadian star in the company without a doubt. If I piss somebody off on that one, then sorry, but that's the way I look at it. So that was the story there, buddy. I think that, uh, he was making a plan. He had a plan, a life plan. And we, so much today, we don't see that in athletes or performers or certainly wrestlers because everybody's chasing that one more payday. Hey, there's a lot of guys at this amazing, uh, event here in Vegas that are chasing a payday because they need the money. God bless them. I was support, as supportive as I can to all these dudes, but that's the situation. He wasn't in that mindset. He was going to be financially comfortable to be able to spend great productive years with his wife and raising his children. And let's not forget his mom and dad were not getting any younger and he was the youngest child. And he's also had those deep roots in Calgary. He wasn't going to move to someplace else, Florida, wherever. So he's a, he was just a different man. I, I had great conversations with him about his career and ideas. And he'd give you feedback and he'd tell you, Hey, take a look at this guy. There's a guy down in so-and-so that might be good here. He was a team guy, man. He really was. Martha Hart wrote a book called broken hearts, the life and death of Owen Hart. And she tells the story of Owen eating lunch at camper six hours before showtime. When he's approached by Bobby Talbert a rigger out of Orlando, Florida, hired by the WWF to coordinate the stunt. And he would introduce himself to Owen and brag that he was the guy who had done this for sting. And he alludes to the fact that Vince was unhappy with the speed and fumbling around, uh, that happened when they did this stunt six months prior. Or so, uh, in St. Louis, and now they're going to do a new quick release snap shackle. That would make all the difference in the world. Once he's lowered to the ring, he just gives a light tug on a release cord. It disengages the repelling line from the harness. And in a split second, he's free to move around the ring. And they do a test with a 250 pound bag of sand. And the second test is with Matt Allman, who is, uh, the assistant to Talbert strapped to the harness. And, uh, they run both of these tests and everybody seems okay. And then they want to do a dry run with Owen in the harness and According to Martha, Owen politely declined saying, I've done it before. It's no big deal. And just wasn't worried about it. Um, Martha would say that Owen argued with the script writers about, you know, trying to, you know, not be happy with the way this was going down and, you know, they're going to do a spoof where they're going to have max mini 
attached to the harness and, oh. um, that's going to get it over. Right. That's going to take it over to the next level. No doubt about that. It's just so stupid. It's so stupid. It's ill-conceived. Now, if, if you say it's going to be a spectacular entrance, fine. Maybe it will be a spectacular entrance. It'll certainly be a unique entrance. I don't know how spectacular it's going to be. It's going to be unique. Uh, but you know, it's just to, to say in that same breath and that same pitch, it's going to take him to the next level. It's going to help him get more notice. It's going to be a positive thing. It's not going to be a positive thing to the, to the, to the character. Cause what can you do with it? You can't have a match on it. Uh, you don't want to put a vertically challenged little guy on there, dude, like you're two guys jumping out of a damn airplane parachuting. It just didn't make any sense when you stopped and thought about it. It was a sensational idea, pull out of somebody's keister. And it just, just, uh, the more I think about it now, that's why I don't think about it a lot. I'm getting pissed off. It just wasn't, wasn't necessary. I didn't know the Max Manny detail that he was supposed to be in an identical blue blazer outfit and uh, Owens not wanting to do the rehearsal, um, saying, Hey, if Vince wasn't happy with how I unhooked myself, I definitely don't want to have to worry about unhooking someone else, especially, you know, since Max Manny doesn't even speak English, that's going to be even more difficult. Yeah. Uh, hello. Hello. Houston. Hello. God, it was Isn't this, it, Conrad. The more you talk about this the more absurd it, it becomes all over again. Max mini. Oh, we're going to laugh at us. Laugh. Yeah. Let's make wrestling as funny as we goddamn possibly can, because everybody knows that a wrestling fan really wants us to watch big guys act and be funny. We want, we want wrestlers to be untrained, but, but very funny comedians. Somewhere along the way, that trend hopefully will stop and maybe Saturday night, but nonetheless, uh, I don't get the, I just, again, I'm, I'm all over the place here. I get it. I apologize folks, but God dang, man, I'm having so many flashbacks and, and it's, this ain't easy. So he begs off of the, um, rehearsal and, uh, it's written in Martha's book. His motive for begging out of the rehearsal was as much to do with inconvenience as fear. Um, he just didn't want to waste time sitting around waiting for other people to get their act together. And, uh, he finally says, okay, I'll come do the uh, rehearsal at 2 PM. And of course, two o'clock comes and there's no sign of Owen. And, uh, he's hopeful that, you know, he can get out of this rehearsal and just do it because he's done it before. And because he's not there to do the rehearsal, they decide they're going to do the max mini dual drop the next night in St. Louis on raw and, uh, Oh, installing that tactic, uh, I guess inadvertently saved max mini's life, which is pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. Uh, sure. Sure. He is. He finally got back to the arena around three o'clock and tried to do the, Oh, oh I'll be right back. <laughs> and, uh, just trying to do whatever he could, uh, sure. to, to get out of this. And eventually he gets on a uh, steel graded catwalk and he's in the Southwest corner of the ring, standing on a catwalk with Talbert, staring down at a large scoreboard that he's going to slide past on his way down. And, um, apparently Talbert would later claim that he briefed Owen on the importance of not touching the quick release cord before landing saying, Jesus Christ, not touching it. You're here, here. Look, look where he is. 
don't touch it now. Yeah. How the hell can you guarantee somebody's going to be dropping from the sky and not inadvertently touch something that they weren't supposed to touch? You know, this is again, untrained stunt man, Owen Hart. That was him. He's, he's not a stunt man. Do you, you know, s- a, do you, you know. see them working through, or are you ringside? Cause I know these days, sometimes announcers will, will hang out as guys are sort of doing walkthroughs and things like that. Was that, were you ringside for, you know, early before the doors are open or are you in the office? Are you in the back? Uh, I, I would probably be, uh, out, uh, out at the ringside position, uh, trying to get any germane and, and important feedback from the talents regarding what they plan on doing, uh, that night. But, uh, I never was the, I'd probably not as involved in that as some of the guys are today because I, I felt like it always stymied me to know more than I needed to know. And if I could, if they wanted to call this in a reality way in a sporting venture type of feel, then I don't need to know the finish. If I'm going to do a football game, they're not going to tell me Alabama's going to win again, even though we know they are, <laughs> I, I, got, I wanted to say from my own eyes and put my own narrative on it. So I would, I would go out, stay out there for most of the afternoon, get all, but you didn't have to get information from everybody. I, I just need information from the things that, that we're featuring. It would not have been an eight man tag or a mixed tag. I didn't, what they did was fine, but on the big stuff, the main event stuff, uh, then what matches involving Austin and rock and taker and Hunter and those good, those dudes, Mick Foley, uh, I would have, uh, certainly lit, been out there to get some, what, what are we doing here? Anything I need to know. And sometimes it's simple. Nope. It's all straightforward. JR. Okay. You'll see it. Good. Thank you. Then I would leave and go back to my little town relations office. And we're and finish up my show notes just to organize everything for the, you know, working without a net that night on a live pay-per-view. So I would, I might even, I might have, even if they had a rehearsal, I may have missed it because I may not have been sitting out there. I didn't, I don't, I don't remember anybody rehearsing. So I probably didn't see any of it. Did somebody rehearse? Yeah. Talbert would say, as long as you don't put your hands on this, nothing's going to happen. And when you get to the floor, you grab it and give it a deliberate pull upwards. So it gives me a visual cue to pull the rope back up. And Martha would write, despite having difficulty in trying to keep his cape from interfering with his arm movement, the test went relatively well. However, upon landing, Owen forgot to pull the release cord, prompting several WWF officials to scream and yell at him as he moved around the ring with the rope still attached to him asked if he wanted to try it a second time. The answer was a quick, no, I got it. Uh, I take it. You didn't see the rehearsal. No. And, and, and the two reasons for that, a, I could have been very busy with another talent's issues. I could have been uh, sequestered to work over my show notes. Uh, but the other thing is the less I knew how something was going to come off, the better I felt like I could react to it. How, how I, I often wonder if I had known that uh, Taker was going to throw Mick off the top of the cell in 98 in Pittsburgh, how I would have called it. And I thank God that I didn't know that he wanted to do that because then everything was real, organic, and exactly how I felt at that moment. I kind of wanted to protect that feeling because I, I never was a guy that needed to know all the information. Hey, when he worked for Cowboy Bill Watts, he didn't tell you nothing. He told you just philosophical points. But he didn't give you all the all the all the inside stuff on a, on a on a TV finish. If I was not articulate enough to recognize what was going on and to put a narrative to that music, to their to their action, then I I got to be replaced. That's what would have happened to me. I'd have been gone. Luckily, he taught me good enough that I was well enough, I should say, 
my verbiage, my diction is not so good now, but, uh, <laughs> fairly, but he taught me well enough to where I got by, but that's the deal. I did the less, you know, the better you are Conrad. And I, I can promise you that it's like, that's like me taking you to a movie and then telling you all the good shit. Hey, Connor, watch this. She's getting ready to get killed. Watch this. You'll love it. You know, oh God. Um, Martha wrote noticeably quiet as he made his final preparations. Owen paced back and forth, prompting longtime colleague, Dustin Runnels, AKA Goldust, asked him if he was nervous and Owen admitted he was before Reynolds assured him it'll be all right. And Owen placed his cape and mask into a duffel bag. And to help conceal his identity for the walk through the crowd to the rafters, he put on uh, prison like coveralls and wore a baseball cap pulled down over his face and leaving his dressing room with the bag slung over his shoulder. He bumped into Harley race told by Owen. He was very uncomfortable with the upcoming stunt race. Tried to put him at ease by joking. Be careful. That rope doesn't break. And Harley's wife, BJ offered up a hug to comfort him. And asked if he felt better. And Owen said, the only thing that makes me feel better is your cooking. Um, and then Owen goes down the hall to an elevator, takes him to the basement of the arena, to the main concourse. He walks briskly past hundreds of wrestling fans, staring at the ground, trying to remain anonymous, headed for section 221, where he hurries up several flights of stairs to the last row of the building, and then climbs a rickety wooden ladder to the catwalk and obviously not designed for heavy traffic. And that's where this would all happen. Um, he's going to get up there and be greeted at about a half hour before the stunt is to occur. And Talbert has worked in the stunt business for seven years. Uh, but he's a independent contractor, a special rigor for universal studios. And he lands this job based on saying he had two years experience, as we said, doing the entrances for staying. And I guess, you know, he's coming down from the rafters almost as like a parody of Sting. Is that sort of the idea? Because, hey, that's what they're doing. We'll sort of mock that and say, oh, look, this is what our parody superhero does, sort of like the top star on the other side. I think it, that's Conrad. I'm sorry. I think it's basically another illustration of uh, they wanted to satirize Sting. Sting was the, the, the top dog in WCW, their homegrown. Uh, personally developed star. Uh, and I think it was just another shot along the lines of a, you know, a billionaire Ted skid or something along those lines. It's uh, razor, my little razor and diesel thing that I did, uh, with Glenn and, uh, and the other kid from Canada. Um, so it was, here's the thing. When you pitch an idea like that to Vince, as competitive as he is, uh, he's going to love it. If he thinks he's going to piss somebody off that, that he's uh, competing with, or he's going to get the hand, the, the mental edge, he's going to love that. He's going to love doing it. And he's going to thank you for coming up with the idea. So then at the end, then at the end, you say, okay, now we're going to do this thing. Uh, if you say it's going to be very entertaining and that's all we need is this entertainment, then maybe we'll get lucky. But if we're going to use it to draw any money, we're, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're we're farting in the wind. Ain't going to work going away evaporates. And I think that's kind of what this was. Let's we've, we've made fun of everybody else. Now let's make fun of sting who didn't bother a soul in the world or none of this stuff. Minutes from his cue. Owen apparently moved his arms out and away from his body several times to try to reposition the Cape in an effort to conceal the harness. And 
The cape was uh, awkward and heavy and had a tendency to choke him if it wasn't positioned properly. So this is what he's doing. Uh, and he's even trying to step over the railing and outside of the scaffolding to get ready to make the jump, but it's difficult with this cape. Um, eventually they check the tension and now he's sort of dangling by the shoulders and he's ready to go. And, um, well, here it is perhaps being somewhat choked by the cumbersome Cape Owen extended his elbows out and away from his body in an effort to make a subtle adjustment to the Cape. It was then that three riggers were horrified to hear the distinct sound of the snap shackles release. Talbert looked down immediately to see Owen plunging towards the ring, falling backwards and in a slight clockwise spiral before landing violently 78 feet below. shattering his left arm just above the elbow and causing massive internal injuries upon initial contact. Owen was flipped backwards by the highly strung cable. His 229 pound body comored into the ring where he sprang a foot off the canvas before settling into the corner, lying motionless on his back with his feet pointing towards the center of the ring and his head mere feet from the apron. It took several seconds for his rubbery arms to rest at his side, bouncing off the spring like canvas mm. well that's a hell of a i wonder where she got a lot of information or had a lot of information in her book about what went on backstage and his mood and so forth i just wonder who all her sources were I'm just curious out of curiosity not a not out of vengeance or right or or, or, or anything negative in that regard i just wonder because uh, some people are very willing apparently and i don't think that's a bad thing that uh, she was uh, informed of everything that went on, and that was a big all that all that information was played a big hand in her lawsuit. She would continue unconscious due to the violent impact that tore his aorta and instantly began filling his lungs with blood. An innate survival reflex prompted the muscles and nerves of a wide-eyed Owen to attempt to sit up. Described by one man looking like someone struggling to finish off a set of a hundred abdomen crunches with one final desperate attempt. Owen was unable to do much more than lift his masked head a few inches off the mat. It's pretty crazy. You know, they, um, she would say that he was moving at a rate of 45 miles an hour. And, um, he, when he came through my monitor, <clears throat> pardon me, when he came through my monitor, uh, he was, it was a bullet train. It was a, just a, a blur. Boom. And that's why I wasn't sure what I saw coming through my monitor. And then I looked up just a few inches, just raise your head a little bit. And there he was there. He, and he hit. So I, my timing was bad on the, I didn't, I couldn't make out what happens exactly on the little monitor. But when I saw this flash go through my screen on my monitor, I looked up and that's when I saw him uh, hit. So then you knew it was real. Off duty police officers, Todd Bryant and Joe Dana for working security 20 feet from the ring when Owen hit the mat and, they started to check on him and eventually Lawler makes his way over and puts his hand over Owen's mouth and says he's not breathing. And they use some scissors to cut his mask off and start chest compressions through his outfit. It's just, uh, God dog. This is hard to get through. Yeah. I'm telling you, uh, <clears throat> it was, it was terrible. I mean, again, maybe Lawler and I were, we, we were in a tough spot as we say, but poor us. Uh, I could only imagine again, we talked earlier about how it was backstage. At least we had a little bit of 
a little bit of sanity in our little area, our little few feet there together. So, uh, uh, it was, it is hard to get through. It is this whole damn thing's hard to get through because of the, of the nature of, but people are going to, are hearing things about this from a perspective that I promise you, you've never heard before. Not from me. Right. They, uh, they say that he still had a heartbeat, but it was known as the dying heart rhythm, meaning he had yet to flatline and they're trying to administer medicine to, uh, or shots to raise the heart rate, but no response His his eyes are still fixed and dilated and, um, they're going to put him in, you know, the spinal column and all that stuff. And then eventually the ambulance. And when he finally arrives to the Truman medical center, just three miles away, uh, they administer something into the air tube and they hook him up to an IV and they decide that he's already clinically dead here. Um, golly, man, this is just rough to, to think that this is where it is at eight Oh seven. Uh, they're trying, you know, their last efforts. And then at eight Oh twelve, at eight twelve, that's where they call it. And, uh, he's gone. And I think most people know this, but Bret Hart was actually. Uh, on a flight to LA coming through Toronto. So he's on a plane when this happens and, and someone hands him a note that says, please call home family emergency. And, uh, when he finally gets through, uh, Carlos says, are you sitting down? He says, of course I'm on a plane. <coughs> Jeez. And he says that, okay. that Owen passed. Do you ever talk, <sighs> do you ever talk to Brett about losing Owen? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I was respectful of the family then and, and now, and it was so crazy, Conrad. I didn't know what was appropriate. What is the protocol for something like this? Other than to express yourself that you're really, you know, that you, that you care, what can I do? And I'm sorry, but what can you really do? So I kind of laid off of that matter. And, but you know, today I will say the, the good news of that is that Brett and I are great friends and, uh, he knows I had nothing to do with his Montreal bullshit. And, uh, he also knows that I care for the family. So, but we never really talked about it a lot. We, when we got, when we get together sometimes and Owen's name comes up, Conrad, I think it's a defense mechanism for both Brett and me to some degree. He may disagree with this, but I'm just my assumption for me, it's true. We both had rather invest our time and our conversation in laughing about some of his ribs. Right. He did some of the greatest ribs in history, especially like with his dad. He ribbed his dad as hard as anybody else. And, and he, and he loved to tell those stories. So, uh, uh, but that's kind of what we talk about. So, but yeah, we talked and it was good to do that. I mean, you know what we needed to do it. And it was just, it was a, uh, it's just all so, you know, I look back, I'm trying to think of good things to say here. And it's like, Every time I turn my head, I get the shit slapped out of me here. So it's, it's, it's challenging, man. Let's talk about the next night. You know, they decided to do a tribute show to Owen and, um, Martha was critical of that. She said Vince followed through with a Monday night raw as war show scheduled for St. Louis rather than postpone or cancel the show, giving his wrestlers time to cope with the loss of their friend and colleague. He used Owen's death as a golden opportunity to bolster ratings in a highly contested viewership battle. He transformed the show at the Keel Center into a tribute card for Owen, and wrestlers stood with tears in their eyes for a 10 bell salute to open the evening. 
The matches were short and devoid of risque behaviors or angles of any sort. And throughout the show, wrestlers and staff spoke of their favorite memories of Owen in pre-taped segments that aired regularly between bouts. Never once have I questioned the profound sadness and loss most of the wrestlers felt in the days and weeks that followed Owen's death. In fact, some like Jeff Jarrett continue to stay in touch with me and show their support and respect to Owen to this day. This business is cold, callous, selfish, self-serving, and unrealistic. Jarrett said in his emotional tribute, it's a fantasy world. He did what he did with integrity and integrity in this business is few and far between. And she would say that most spoke about his pranks and, uh, that endeared him to everyone. And she says, perhaps the most touching words came from Jim Ross, who said he hoped he could be as good of a man as Owen. So I can see him again someday. Mm. God, what well, gut just turns my gut. Yeah. I remember saying that. And that's another one of those deals where it was like, uh, Kevin Dunn comes on and says, uh, JR, we want you and King to say something about Owen. Cause you know, we kind of, we kind of sit in that chair, you know, the night before. And, and, uh, so you know, of course we're not, what are you going to say? And of course, we're, of course. So we do something we're doing comes on camera. And again, it's one of those situations, man, where you just let your heart and your instincts take over. I didn't write nothing down didn't try to rhyme anything. I didn't want to be cool. Here's the deal. And I believe that I believe that Owen Hart was as good a man that I ever met in this business as a human being, uh, a, a father, a brother, everything good, man. Everything was good about this guy, everything. And I just knew that if somewhere in my lifetime that I could rise my raise my game up to his level, I knew where I would be at the end of the day. When my, when, as Bobby Heenan would say, when I took that final dirt nap for OJR, we know where he's headed. And that's what I saw with Owen. We knew Owen was in a better place. And depending on what your religion is, I'm not going to get into all that because that started another firestorm for somebody looking for something to piss on. But uh, he was, uh, I believe that. I believe he was as good as a guy. And if I could be half the man or as close to him, uh, my afterlife was, would be very well uh, spoken for. I guess we should mention here, um, Owen's funeral was on the 31st of May in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. You attended, correct? Nope. Why, what was that day on? Do we, do we have raw? Surely. Are you saying you didn't go because that was raw? I can tell you this in a nutshell. One, I did not go to the funeral. Two, I regret it to this very day. And three, there's something, uh, if something work oriented, uh, and maybe I want to think it might've been the voiceovers. No, you're exactly so, right. It was taped on the 25th and yeah. it aired on the 31st. Yeah. And so Lawler and I, uh, went to the studio at Stanford and did the voiceovers for, for raw that night. And that's why we didn't go. The, uh, there, there and is I, re- I, I want to tell you something of all the regrettable things I've done in my professional lifetime, that's got to rank right there at the top. But, you know, you got this job you got, right? So I don't know how we could have done it. And, uh, and, uh, did we're multitasking and, you know, I, I wasn't at the point of arguing. I wasn't at the point of making an issue. I, I, I was suffering like the family and his friends and his fans and his, like everybody else. And quite frankly, for me, I've always found solitude and peace 
doing my work and being this play-by-play guy. And I'm thinking to you that I probably got some really good cathartic time because I got away from thinking totally about this tragedy to do the job that we had to do. Cause you know, it's a different ball game. You're in a studio doing voiceovers. It's more challenging times. Very crucial. Can't miss this. Can't miss that. Cause everything's already on tape. There's no fluctuation. So I didn't go to that funeral and I f- regret it this very day, this very day. I wish I could have gone, but I, I, I couldn't. And, but my thoughts are there large degree, but I think it was cathartic to be able to stay back and do the show. Cause we talked about it on that show a little bit, you know, obviously. So anyway, yeah, it was not, a, it wasn't a decision I would make today. Isn't it funny? We've talked about a lot of things to how today about if we had, if today, if it happened today, we might do it differently. Would we continue the, the, the pay-per-view? Probably not. At least in my view. Uh, and this is called grilling Jr. So Jr. says, I probably would not continue to show. That's my opinion. That's all. It doesn't, it's not an indictment on everybody in WWE that made like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw McMahon on the bus. He'll be thrown on the bus ample times. He's thrown me on the bus. Who gives a shit? Let me, let me ask you about the, uh, the decision to air clips of the funeral on Monday night raw mm. on the 31st, it is a taped raw, but they show footage of WWF wrestlers walking into the funeral. And Martha would say, I made it clear. He was not to include anything from the funeral on this show. I didn't want him to continue profiting in any way from Owen's death. That would be pretty low. And, uh, they aired it. what do you think of that decision? Well, I didn't know that, uh, that Martha had, uh, allegedly, uh, conversed with Vince to, and with, with specific instructions to not air any of the funeral footage. And, you know, here, look, I'm not trying to say I can, I can understand where she's coming from. Cause I can't, I, she's a, his wife, she bore his two children. Uh, so I can't say, oh, I don't, here's, here's how she was feeling. How do you know? How do you know? So, uh, but I never knew that that conversation took place, Conrad. And so therefore when the, when the footage aired, I thought it was just exactly what we needed to have. As far as an update was concerned, we can't go on a television show. I don't think this is my opinion. I agree. I think Vince is right in this case about the, the news footage. Everybody else had it. You know, everybody, every, every, everybody else, meaning all these various news services around the world were covering it and getting footage. And, and so his, his home audience that he, that grew up watching him and he, and he grew, he grew up before their eyes in essence, would be devoid of any coverage to it. was like, it would be a, it would be a disservice in my opinion to the audience at that point, not to follow up on the, as a news story about the funeral in Calgary. So, uh, I, I didn't have an issue with it, to be honest with you, uh, again, but I didn't, I wasn't privy to any private conversations that Vince may or may not have had with, with Martha. Well, I guess we should mention three weeks after Owen passed, Martha files a wrongful death lawsuit against the WWF and it settled out of court for a reported $18 million on November 2nd, 2000. And in December, 2000, Martha created the Owen Hart foundation and owenhartfoundation.org. And it's a charity that provides university and college scholarships for children in need. 
as well as housing for low-income families. And the Owen Hart Foundation also supports a number of worthwhile charities in the Calgary community. And Martha said that she started the foundation and created a meaningful legacy for Owen because she knew Owen would be happy that she was helping people in his name, especially in the area of education, as it was always very important to both of them. And something that was important to a lot of people is to remember Owen's memory in wrestling. And Martha was not always on board with that. When the WWE put a DVD out about Owen, uh, Martha says, my children and I were unaware of this project until May 7th, when it was brought to our attention by a friend who had read about it online. Contrary to your support, your report, we do not back or support it in any way, nor has the WWE requested our backing or support from what little we know of the project. It seems to be another attempt to exploit Owen's memory and his tragic death for commercial gain. We have resisted that kind of initiative for almost 16 years. If WWE really wanted to honor Owen's legacy, it would just let him rest in peace. And, um, talking about the hall of fame, which has obviously been something that has been a hot topic. Martha has said about Owen being in the WWE hall of fame. I am firm in my belief that the WWE was responsible for Owen's death. And as a result, I cannot and will not support any efforts by the WWE to profit from Owen's memory. I want nothing to do with the WWE in any regard in relation to Owen or any other front. It is worth mentioning. Uh, this is me talking now. It is worth mentioning. Owen's in a ton of other hall of fames, like the Luthez professional wrestling hall of fame and all that. But yep, he is, but Mark Henry thinks that Owen should be in the WWE hall of fame. And he has been on record as saying that, that Owen brought him so much joy and he wishes he could be here. And he said during his speech and Martha, let that camera zoom in here, please. This is not from the company. This is not from the other wrestlers. This is from his other brother. He needs to be here. And I hate that I haven't kept up like I should have. I would love to be able to look down one day and see Oge able to be among us. This is his birthright. What say you, Jim? We haven't talked about this before. Should, should Owen be in the WWE hall of fame? Well, of course, absolutely. It's not even a, it shouldn't even be a, I don't know. I understand why you asked the question, but it's, it's not a, yeah, it's not a hard question. Uh, it's in my view. He earned that opportunity. He brought joy and smiles and tears and laughter and shock and awe to fans all over the world for a long time. And he had a huge fan base. People loved him. And when you met Owen, you couldn't help but love him. So for him not to have the opportunity to be enshrined in the WWE Hall of Fame where he, he earned, he didn't get all of his fame there, but let's be honest, the majority of it, uh, it's a no-brainer. So I think what it does, look, I understand Martha's, I understand the part of Martha that's grieving. I've grieved myself lately. But at some point in time, uh, you can't, gr this grieving process is a strange cat, man. And one person can't dictate it, dictate how everybody else grieves. I can promise you. So, uh, I, I think that, uh, I think that Martha's being a little selfish at sometimes. And that's, uh, that's cold to say she's got JR. She's a widow. She's got two kids to raise. I'm sorry if that comes off bad and I'm, I'm apologizing now, but it just seems to me on the surface. Okay. Look, you you filed this lawsuit justifiably. So, and you want it and you got you know, somewhere in the $18 million range, uh, before attorney fees, let's not get past that. Uh, and 
So that's been settled. It, in the process of doing that, it imploded within the family, which is totally unnecessary because it was never a point where it didn't seem like Martha was really willing at times to move on. But again, she was grieving. And I can promise you that process is, there's no manual for it and you, no predictability to how you grieve. So I, I just think that she might've been, uh, unfair to the fans who loved him, who bought tickets for seat to see him, who helped him earn a great living for a long time, but who really had an emotional investment in the character and the character was the real guy. You know, there's a lot we could talk about, you know, with the lawsuits and the back and forth and the settlements and Jerry McDivitt's comments about the right to sell DVDs or in the end, you know, not, none of us going to bring back Owen. None of mm. it's going to write what happened. Let's, uh, let's wrap up today's episode with, uh, a fun story. Any, I'm sure you've got dozens. Give us a funny one about uh, a funny prank or a rib or. Share with us one of the lighter moments of Owen. I had a, a occasion, more than one occasion, this is particular occasion, uh, to need to bring somebody into my uh, little talent relations office at the arena, at the, you know, on a Raw or SmackDown or whatever. Normally what that office meant is I got a, like a, a small dressing room, locker room, and some of the talents were dressing there from time to time, some more tenured guys, uh, and I enjoyed the company. When I need to have a meeting with talent, they left right, and so forth. So I, I'm getting ready to have this meeting with this guy. And uh, allegedly, he had been using cocaine. And so uh, I mentioned to somebody, you know, I got to talk to, maybe I don't remember who it was. I got to talk to talk so and so today. I got a little issue. Somehow, Owen got word that I was going to have a talk with Rester Blank about alleged cocaine use. So I'm walking down the hall to go to catering to find the guy, bring him back to my office. And, uh, here comes Owen. He's staggering and bouncing off the walls like he's drunk because he would have no earthly idea how he would feel if he was on cocaine because he never did it. <laughs> and he didn't realize cocaine takes you the other way and not the down way. He went north with it, not south. Then I get closer. I got to him. I looked at him. He had gone to the dessert stand at the catering and got him a powdered donut. He took that, that powder, that sugar, and put it all over his nose and upper lip. <laughs> so he said, then he looked at me and said, I heard you're having a bad day. <laughs> I said, well, it's better now. But things like that was, were good. you know, little things. Uh, he, I was, we were on a bruise cruise or some cruise one time. And I, I, I think I had the original George Costanza scene where there was shrinkage. And I was in a pool with these big ass swim trunks on, not only because of my big ass, but because it just looked, made me look slimmer, I thought. But that's it. So I don't know where he is. You, you, you never know about him. So we're talking wiser there to the kids. All of a sudden, my pants are down on my feet, my swimsuit. And little Jimmy ain't looking so good. And he laughed his ass off. That was the funniest thing in the world. And I couldn't chase him because of my pants around my ankles. All I want to do is get my damn pants up, my, my, my swimsuit up and cover up the uh, shortcomings. But nonetheless, it was, he, he was a equal opportunity ribber. 
No one was immune. Every, Brett got it. Stu got it. His buddies got it. Everybody got it. But it was a it was a beautiful way. It's a beautiful way. So that's what I remember. He makes he made so many people laugh. And when you're on the road that much, Conrad, uh, and you're with your family as much as these cats are, and you're you're at a very uh, fragile business. Am I am I over, brother, or am I not over? When do I get my push? Blah blah blah. Uh, those lighter moments in a locker room or an airplane or a charter or a tour bus or whatever it may be are invaluable. And that's what you got out of Owen Hart. He kept everybody upbeat, happy, positive, and he would, he was a great listener. Nobody's ever talked about that very much. He was one of the best listeners because he gave a shit. He cared about you and how you were feeling. So he was a great listener. He paid attention and, uh, it just, I just, I've never seen anybody, uh, I think he's way, way far ahead of his time as an in-ring performer, but by, he had that Mexican style. He could do, utilize the Latino style. He was great in Japan. You know, he's just, he just, he had, he, he was just, he didn't just experience these styles. He was a little bit like Jericho. And I think Jericho may have followed the lead there a little bit because not only does, as uh, Jericho gotten experience in all these different styles, uh, Lucha Libre or the Japanese or whatever it may be. Well, and, and Jericho became, has become really, really good at all those. Well, uh, Owen mastered those before almost anybody else. There's a small little group that had the same experiences. Eddie Guerrero was one of them. Ben Wall was one of them. Uh, but nobody got great at all those disciplines as, as great as Owen Hart did. That was a precedent setter. And any young wrestler... Any young fan, especially young, some young talents looking for somebody to watch on a road trip, on your device, whatever it may be, check him out, man. He'll teach you so much. And even though you've never met him and he probably never will until the hereafter. One of the all time greats. And, uh, it's unfortunate that we lost him 20 years ago today. Uh, today was a tough episode and, uh, I hope we don't do too many of these, but I felt like it needed to be done. Uh, yep. nobody's really talked about this show and nobody's really talked about Owen in his final moments. And it's been written about, um, JR was ringside. It felt like, uh, an opportunity to pay tribute to one of the all time greats, Owen Hart. So stop what you're doing this weekend and go fire up some Owen Hart matches. Um, there's tons of that on the network for you to enjoy and, and relive some of the happier times and. We'll be back next week with, uh, something a little different next week will be a lot more lighthearted. Uh, we're going to have, uh, something unique, Jim, what came in second in our poll this week was capital combat. So, uh, talk about, a, a, a departure. We're going to be talking about RoboCop next week. Well, that certainly isn't as serious as what we talked about here today, folks. I can promise you. So if we've uh, taken you down a, a dark hole here, telling you the truth about something that really happened. Uh, next week will be a little different ball game because R- RoboCop, I remember my great lines that night, my God, Bob, it's RoboCop. <laughs> Bob Cottle said to me, how the hell are we going to call this? I said, I don't have any idea, but that was, that was a great classic deal. We'll talk about it next week in the detail where, where the opportunity came up to promote RoboCop's movie 
How are you going to do it? And they, they came up with him being in a goddamn match. Are you kidding me? And I do believe to this very day, it was a little bit of old, old the KGO Ole Anderson uh, taking a sharp stick and sticking it right up the backside of WCW Brass because there was no way. I'll close with this. I apologize for my language and start here. You can't shine shit. And Robocock was shit. It was shit. And uh, we'll be back next week right here to talk a little Robocop. Who booked this what? shit? What? John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.